0: Hey, what's going on guys? Welcome back to the Phil Crafts Survival Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by KillCliff.com. KillCliff.com has been a partner of ours for over a year. If you're into really good, healthy energy drinks, make sure you check them out. They have a full line starting with the Ignite to kickstart your routine. Uh, They have the Endure to sustain it as well as the Recovery on the back end, the Recover on the back end. Uh, to make sure you get replenished with electrolytes and vitamin B. Uh, also, they support the Navy SEAL Foundation. They do good work in the community. We're all about Killcliff. Check them out at killcliffe.com. Use Philcraft10. I'm sorry, use Survival10, Survival10, to save 10% on checkout. We should probably make all the coupon codes the same, but oh well. Also, this podcast is spon- sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. Jimmy, Chris, the guys at Triarch Systems are our favorite people in the industry. Good people doing the right thing with the 2A community, building custom platform guns, pistols, carbines, rifles, you name it. Uh, I have their new Tri-11. It's one of my favorite pistols. It's a flat-triggered uh, based off the 1911 platform. Uh, make sure you check them out and use Philcraft on checkout to save 5% on any build at TriarchSystems.com. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Casey Highlights, I got a new KC highlight bar on my front bumper of my Go Rig. If you were with us at our AT Overland Go Rigs and Coffee here in town in Prescott, Arizona, you would have seen that light bar. I'm getting the new pod over the windshield um, and looking forward to the other lighting system that's gonna be hooked up in conjunction with my AT Overland Summit, which is that camper that you basically could, you know, with one hand, you can get this camper set up. KC highlights. Uh, Real good company that does real good stuff in the overlanding community. Make sure you check out Casey Highlights at CaseyHighlights.com and use Philcraft, one word, to save 10% on any purchase from Casey Highlights. Also, this podcast is brought to you by BCM, Bravo Company Manufacturing. Big shout out again to John Chang, or. Our uh, marketing guy for BCM But one of our partners and good friends Uh, He has Black Powder Red Earth One of my favorite graphic novels You can check them out at BPRE Or BlackPowderRedEarth.com But big shout out to BCM And Paul, the CEO, Patriot Um, Who made me a gunfighter I've been working strategically with that company For a couple years now And I I love the guys at BCM Thank you so much for supporting us If you're interested in buying uppers Check us out at info at com. We're not doing the lowers yet because of the FFL But we have managed to get through the uppers Uh, We are working with them to do the 11.5 inch uppers Because we think that's the optimal length But make sure you check us out Also, hey, this podcast We had the opportunity to check out uh, a buddy of mine Aaron from Flagstaff, who is a psychotherapist, behavioral health therapist and expert, where we talk about everything in the realm of psychology and behavioral health. Uh, It was a pleasure to have him on the podcast, and I think you guys are going to learn a lot about the process of counseling and uh, psychotherapy and psychologist overall, uh, and it helped me out a lot. So here we go. Aaron, man, thanks for being on the podcast and coming down here from Flagstaff, man. My pleasure. So, you, I, well, first of all, um, one, I met you as part of a member of the the Philcraft tribe, and you guys, you brought your whole family here, which is really cool. Um, we always encourage people who um, train in preparedness. Or it, it's like if you do it as an individual, at least go back and teach what you've learned, but you brought your entire family. Um I'm interested to hear your background before we get into like what you do for a living and everything else, uh, because you you have a musical background. uh, Obviously, your family is is part of that musical uh, experience. Uh, You're a psychotherapist. um, You're into preparedness and everything else, and that's an assimilation of a lot of stuff, which is really cool to me. (laughs) Um, But I'm interested to hear my mind. Yeah, I'm interested (laughs) to hear how that how that got started from the beginning. Let's let's do that.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I won't talk about myself too much because I think maybe my mom would be the only one interested in hearing that. (laughs) Definitely not even my kids. And my wife has heard it enough. But uh, so I guess real brief kind of breakdown. Uh, I was born in Utah, uh, grew up there as a little kid and was pretty heavily involved in scouts. Um, My mom... Sometimes stayed at home. Sometimes she worked. As I got older, she worked a lot more. Uh, My dad was a construction worker, so he was gone a lot. My parents were kind of separated off and on and eventually divorced. Uh, Then at some point they remarried and uh, then our family moved to Seattle and I finished out high school in Seattle. Um, Somewhere along the line, uh, my dad played guitar, but mostly bass when he was a kid. And so there was like a guitar always around the house, but especially like my dad's record collection. Mm. And he was a construction worker. So he was like on the road all the time and working super late. So he wasn't really always around that much. Um, Although he really got into coaching soccer for us for a while. And we were on a really, you know, competitive soccer team. We were like, for some reason, we're the only team in the whole city that was like, kept the same players every year yeah every year they would always just switch it up and then we would just dominate people it was like 10 to 0 or like 11 to 1 and like all this it was like embarrassingly crushing people but it was like this isn't a secret strategy has anyone noticed that like we're always the same team <laughs> we just learned how to play <laughs> together you know and uh so uh you know played a lot of sports as a kid played basketball for a little bit wasn't any good at that um stereotypically white when it comes to basketball skills, <laughs> but, uh, played a lot of soccer, love soccer, uh, played football. I remember, uh, becoming kicker pretty quick on a football team as yeah. big because, because of the soccer. Yeah. Anybody know now, how yeah. to kick a football? And every, everyone was like, no, anybody plays soccer? And like three of us raise our hands, like, come over here. Who can kick this between these poles? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that was me. So <laughs> like, so became the kicker for a while. And, um. Uh, Got a got a bad concussion, which was like my third concussion as a kid, uh, playing football, me and this other kid. For some reason, I was a lineman, and I was a very average-sized kid, but they had put me on the line for some reason. And me and this other kid just popped helmets and laid us both out and sent us both to the hospital. Oh, wow. And, and then I got like these recurring migraine headaches just out of nowhere for like six months that were worse than the pain of the original concussion they did ct scans and like no one could really figure out like why i was having them but eventually fortunately they just went away but my mom was like no more football but about that time i had uh, discovered the guitar anyway like um i when i got into middle school i wanted to be in band and, and again my dad had this amazing record collection like Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Who, the Stones, the Doors, Pink Floyd, like Hendrix, like all this amazing stuff, at least amazing to old guys like me. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. And you were stuff.
0: discovering it for the first time via records. Yeah, back then. yeah,
1: absolutely. And and he had a good stereo system or whatever. And so like, you know, I, I sometimes joke with my daughter, like, oh, my dad was this record collection. <laughs> you know, yeah. That was like my dad, in lieu of my dad, I had this amazing <laughs> record collection. And, uh, but I just fell in love with music and my brother also fell in love with music and he's a year and a half younger than me. And I started playing saxophone in middle school band and he started playing drums and he just got like a hundred percent into it. And, and he was like, I'm going to start a band. And I was like, wow, that's like amazing. We can do that. He's my little brother, right? And <laughs> I, was, I never thought that like just I right could be a could musician just like, and he's, you know, he's like 12 years old. I'm going to start a band. And I was like, huh. So he got really into drums and he assembled like this mutant drum kit out of like all these pawn shop drums. And he found it was wow. like giant. It looked like Neil Peart's drums from Rush or something, <laughs> you know, and he barely knew how to play drums. <laughs> But he got super into it, and it was really inspiring to me. And so I was like, can I be in your band? And he was like, sure. You know, I was like a (laughs) saxophone player in his band, but like, you know, kids like rock music, and the saxophone is not like the driver of rock music. (laughs) And so we had like uh, these other guys that we went to school with that played guitar, but they basically sucked. You know, like a, one of them could play like the riff from Sweet Child of Mine by Guns and Roses or whatever. But yeah, that was it. That was, yeah, yeah. that was it yeah. <laughs> basically, right? And so we were doing like Louie Louie and whatever, like all the easiest stuff you can ever first learn on guitar. And I was like, these guys suck. And I love music and I just need to play guitar, I guess, because mm. <laughs> like I'll just get better just than these guys. Yeah. yeah, I'll figure it out. And then... I'll have some say in what's happening with the band. And so um, I always worked as a kid. I think I had my first job when I was like seven. I had a paper route that was like twice a week, right? Wow. And then eventually did like landscaping and, and some other stuff as a kid. But uh, so I always had a little bit of my own money and I always needed it. My dad was a construction worker. We didn't grow up very uh, wealthy or affluent at all. But uh, so I always had a little bit of my own money. And I, I remember being like, Mom, I want to get a guitar. My birthday's coming up. Can you maybe pay half? And she's like, well, it depends on how much it is. And so I looked through the paper and I found it was a 1972 Fender Stratocaster, which is like the guitar I wanted because Hendrix played a Strat, Eric Clapton played a Strat, David Gilmer from Pink Floyd played a Strat. I'm like, I want a Strat. I, I found a Strat in the paper for 150 bucks and uh, came with a case and a teeny little amp that I totally blew the speaker out of it in, trying to keep up with my brother's drums. <laughs> and like a tuner and some like old 70s Melbay chord chart that probably came with a guitar. And it was a guy who was in the National Guard and he had gotten his wife pregnant and he was like just dead broke. Oh, Strat for cash. And just needed this money, right? Because yeah. I was just like, my dream guitar would be a Strat. And they were really, even then they weren't super expensive. This is like late eighties, but way out of my budget as a kid. And for 150 bucks, I can go in 75. My mom can go in 75. Totally doable. So I bought this guitar and like, I didn't even care about sports after that. I didn't even care about scouts. I didn't do anything else. Like, I don't think I like took a leak, but there was a Fender Stratocaster hanging around my neck. You know, it was just like what I did. I just ate it alive. And uh, so she started playing in bands and played in school stuff, and uh, you know, then my parents got remarried after they divorced. They remarried each other, which is pretty weird and all that. Really? And, yeah, a lot of times. And then eventually, like many years, not many years, later, but like 15 years later, they divorced again. What? <laughs> yeah.
0: Cause, Number two. Yeah,
1: because they just, they weren't very good together the first time. Yeah. And then they got together again, Man. and I'm like... All right, let's repeat this. Right? Yeah, I remember being really confused as a kid as to like <laughs> why are you getting remarried, <laughs> right? And uh, but yeah, so they got remarried, and uh, we we moved to Seattle. And I remember me and my brother like being in this small town in Utah where, and like one of our favorite bands was Living Color. Like I don't know if you remember that band. Yeah, I do. All, I do. Yeah, all black hard rock band. Yep. You know, like. That wasn't really, like, a very popular band in, like, rural Utah. Yeah. You know, my friends were like, <laughs> what do you... Like, these guys are all black. And I'm like, yeah. so? Hendrix is black, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Hendrix is the best. So, like, it, I don't know. And growing up as a musician, like, that, that race thing, like, it just wasn't ever a thing to me. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I love Carlos Santana. Yeah. I love Jimi Music Hendrix. triumphs that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, my yeah. heroes were... Sometimes guys of other races, and so it just like, you just don't even see it like that, mm-hmm. you know. And and so it was just like music, like mm-hmm. it just breaks down all those barriers. Like, do you have something like valid to bring to the table? Then you get respect, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so my parents are like, we're getting remarried, and we're all like kind of confused by that. And I'm the oldest, so I probably track it the most, and I'm the most <laughs> confused by that. And they're like, yeah, and we're moving to Seattle. And, you know, you don't really want to, like, move high schools necessarily. Mm-hmm. And you're but, how
0: old at this time? Uh,
1: 15. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I'm like, uh, but we're going to Seattle? Okay. And, like, at that time, the first band that had really broke out of Seattle was, like, Alice in Chains. Like, Man in the Box was on the radio. And But we're like... Love that. Seattle's got to be way better than here. Okay, like and so we were stoked. Like yeah. okay, let's move. Like we'll for the ditch. music scene, especially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, and little did we know, like that was the beginning. Like we moved there in 1990, and so it was like the beginning of that whole thing. Like right around the corner. Like we moved there, and within months, like Nirvana's Nevermind came out and. Pearl Jam's Ten came out, and Soundgarden was, you know, I remember that. coming out. Those years, it was yeah. awesome, and it yeah. was like the place to be as a musician, yep. and and you know, other smaller bands like Mud Honey and Tad, and and all these different you know little bands and stuff. But Seattle was like the epicenter of rock music at mm-hmm. that time, and um, so it was just amazing, and we just kind of ate that alive and played a bunch of music, and were in bands, and recorded a demo like we we had a, a buddy well a guy that lived on our neighborhood who had a like tape and cd duplication business and he like duplicated stuff for sir mix a lot and stuff and he was like hey you know if you guys ever want to make a demo like I'll, I'll get you set up so we got us set up like middle of the night like 12 a.m session <laughs> for six hours to go in and cut a demo And uh, so we went in and did this demo in six hours in the middle of the night in Studio B of uh, Triad Studios in Redmond, Washington, which is where Microsoft actually is. And uh, like Queensryche recorded in Studio A. And so it was like a legit studio, but it was like bargain basement because it was the middle of the night and we got like B team engineers, but it was an amazing studio and just had a great experience doing that stuff. And Started playing around Seattle and stuff like that. And I remember thinking that, like, I was going to be so excited hitting this music scene and finding this, like, camaraderie of, like, like-minded musicians and stuff. And it had become super competitive because everyone was getting famous, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, and we were kids. Like, I, I was 18 years old. My brother was 17 years old. We're going and playing bars. And a lot of the bars, they wouldn't let us in until we actually played our set.
0: So like you couldn't sh- hang out in the bar? <laughs> no, till- not at all. Even back then?
1: The coolest bars, they would like, you know, put a big X on your hand and you could go in and hang out and they would be like, don't serve these, you know, young idiots alcohol because yeah. we'll get in trouble. But and you know, it was fine. I was straight edge kid at that time anyway. My brother was a partier, but I, I didn't care. I was there for the music. And so we started doing that thing and, and my brother... Definitely kind of got a little bit more into the party thing of it and stuff, you know, like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And I, for me, it was just period about the music. And he wanted to go a different kind of more psychedelic drug route. He basically wanted us to be like the Grateful Dead. And, and
0: I was like, Tripping <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah, and playing. I was
1: like, I, I don't want to be the Grateful Dead. Like, uh-huh. And I write the songs. So <laughs> I, I was the vocalist, the guitar player, and I wrote the songs. And so we would get into all these like artistic fights about, you know, the band should be doing this. And I'd be like, well, then you write that song, you know, like like a total <laughs> dick. <laughs> and like you fight as brothers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, we'd have, and then so finally it just blew up and we like hated each other. Yeah. And I was really disillusioned with the scene at that time. So I was like, peace out. Like, I don't want to play music anymore. I've, I've had it with this. And, 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 you know, growing up with my brother, like that musical connection was just like, telepathic you know and, yeah. and so I just didn't really want to start over with somebody else and stuff so I was like I'm just gonna do different stuff with my life and went work construction like my dad did for a little while and I hated high school I thought it was the worst thing on earth yeah. period agreed ever. mine yeah. was the same <laughs> yeah. experience and it I just thought the social scene sucked it, yeah. just the hierarchy and the segregation just, the absolutely toxicity yeah like kids being horrible to other people just because like they don't play the same sport as you, yeah, or they don't wear have the same clothes, the same clothes. exactly. Yeah. Right. And so I just was not into that. And so I always thought like college, you know, I didn't really have like a college background in my family. And I'm like, college is just like high school part two that you have to pay for yourself. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs>
0: not interested in that. Not interested yeah. in
1: that. Right. And so I started working construction and then, you know, had this great opportunity to go down and live on the Navajo Indian Reservation and do some work down there and like some service oh. projects and stuff and, and just loved it. Fell in love with the people, fell in love with the culture. Um, then went back to Seattle and uh, kind of got together with my wife, got married, um, had our first son and was working construction and just hating it. And not so much that I hated the work, even though it sucked to go to work and get rained on all day long, mm. but like, you know, you're in rain gear every day. Yeah. I feel like the gortons fishermen or whatever but yeah. it's it's hard work too yeah and it sucked but it was the guys that i was working with you know they were kind of guys that like i think felt like really stuck in life mm. and disillusioned and and some of them had drug problems and alcohol problems and divorces and just like they were miserable people
0: yeah. and
1: when you're around miserable people for like 50 hours a week yeah that starts to rub off and i remember at some point being like um, I don't ever want to go to work anymore. Like I wake up every day feeling like this is the last thing I want to do is get out of bed and go to work and stuff like that. And I realized I was depressed. And I was like, it's this job. Like I hate this job. Yeah, <laughs> you came to a realization yeah. this is what's it's, wrong it's with it's me. It's literally yeah. just the job. Like I love my wife, like my baby, like everything is really good in my life. I was a huge mountain biker. I love that. But the job, I just absolutely hated. And so I was like. I'm going to college. And mm. I and I, I think I want to be a therapist. I want to study psychology. And sometimes when I tell people more in depth the story of my parents, they're always like, oh, that's why you wanted to be a therapist, huh? Mm. Like, because your parents were so weird, and you're trying to figure them out, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, maybe there could be some truth yeah. to that. <laughs> like, I didn't really think about it at the time, but like, maybe. But
0: what triggered, Was there something that triggered that? Is there something that st- it stemmed from?
1: Yeah, I had a lot of roommates, especially when I went down to the reservation and stuff like that. They were doing some of the same type of work. And I had a lot of roommates with mental health issues. And I remember that a lot of the other roommates were like, I hate these guys. They drive me crazy. I don't want to deal with their crap. And everyone was just like, man, you seem to have a lot of patience for these guys. And, and I remember taking a psychology course in high school just as an elective but it was like the worst experience ever because it was like the baseball coach taught the class oh, and he had to teach a class to like be the baseball coach He's checking the box. and they gave yeah. him the the class that no one wanted to teach right psychology yeah and so we would <laughs> we'd go in that class and he'd be like read chapter 7 that's like, the that's, the end that's of the what class. we're doing today yeah. cuz he didn't know anything about psychology wow it's so it was like the worst but i remember reading stuff in that class and being like wow super interesting That's super interesting and then so then i'm around all these guys that you know have behavioral health issues and they're kind of all over the map and and i'm like this is interesting it's pretty fascinating to me and for some reason i get a lot of this feedback that like you do well with these people so i was like yeah okay maybe i should do that and i um packed my family up in a like Budget rental truck, and we had like a thousand dollars in our bank account, and we enrolled at Northern Arizona University, and wow. drove across the country with our one-year-old son, and it was just an amazing adventure. And got here and started school, and
0: you, you landed in Flagstaff, yeah,
1: Flagstaff, wow, yeah, because I, I wanted to be close to the culture and the people that I got to be around when I the had reservation. Been in the reservation, and and plus I went back to Seattle and realize it rains all the time and it sucks to mountain bike in the rain all the time yeah. when there's like sun in other places. Right. Um, so it was like, yeah, let's go to Arizona, but I want to be in a beautiful place. Cause like you don't leave Seattle to like move to like Tempe, no offense, Tempe. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, yeah. no. You need to upgrade a little. Yeah. Bit. Like the surface of the moon from Seattle. Yeah. That's not really how you would do that. And so, um, we moved to Flagstaff and, and I thought Flagstaff would be this beautiful mountainous place and it is but I was really surprised there's no water in Flagstaff yeah. <laughs> like there is in Seattle there're no streams and lakes and rivers and stuff but it is it, I love it it's a great place and you know so I did my undergraduate in psychology and then um kind of you know 911 happened and growing up I always like was way into the military thing, like 100%. Like People would ask me when I was a little kid, I'm like seven years old, like, what do you be when you grow up, Aaron? And I'm like, a Marine or a doctor? I'm (laughs) either going to help people or I'm going to kill them. (laughs) Really indecisive, apparently. And so that was what I I always thought, like at some point I'm going to serve in the military. And my grandpa was uh, an artilleryman on my mom's side. Mm -hmm. He was an artilleryman in World War II. He served in the South Pacific and fought against the Japanese and... Um, and I had an uncle who was, uh, uh, in the army in Vietnam and he was a career. and my grandpa and my uncle really didn't tell those stories. But to me, cause I was like, I was always just like keyed in on that. Like, yeah. hey, tell me about like when you're in the army, you know, yeah. tell me about when you're in the army, tell me about when you're in the army. And, and they would, they would talk. And like a lot of times I think people are like veterans don't talk about that stuff. And it's yeah. like, well, maybe because
0: nobody asks. nobody yes yeah. right? Everyone's
1: like afraid, like, what if they say something that's uncomfortable? Yeah. And I'm like, they probably will.
0: Yeah. It's an adventure. <laughs> you, you just roll with it. Right? right.
1: Yeah. And so, um, so I was like, you know, always interested in that. And I actually, I remember even once, I remember this was like late nineties and I was married. My wife and I were, were really new in our marriage and stuff. And I was like, hating construction. I was like, I think I want to join the army. Hmm. and I think I want to be a ranger, and my wife's like, whatever, okay, honey, whatever, like, she's super smart, my wife's the greatest lady on earth, I don't know how she puts up with me, but, so I went into the recruiting office, because it was right by this guitar store I used to always go to, and um, I go in the recruiting office, I'm like, hey, I think I want to join the army, and I want to be a ranger, like, what is that all about? I remember, you know, this is like the late 90s, there wasn't really going, anything going on, like, you know, geopolitically in the world about with the army and
0: stuff. Garrison army is what we call it. Yeah. yeah,
1: Right. And they weren't really like hungry for
0: soldiers
1: by any means. And so I go in there and they like have this pull up bar they're like, how many pull ups can you do? I was like, I don't know, like maybe 10. They're like, well, let's see. So I get up on the pull up bar and I did like eight, but I think my last one wasn't that good. And like, like the, the military has a weird culture where it's like, it's not like, oh, man, you almost got eight. Good job. Yeah, I think. It was like seven. That last one sucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, get, <laughs> zero. Off you know, yes. get off the bar. Get off the bar. So I did like seven good pull-ups yeah. and like the last one, they wouldn't count. And they're like, like, the Rangers aren't going to want you. You can only do seven pull-ups. And I'm like... I like felt like totally discouraged. Like how many like American oh, citizens just walk off the street and can crank out seven pull-ups? You yeah. know what I mean?
0: That's the standard. Actually, it's I think it's seven pull-ups. That's what the standard is. <laughs> <laughs> so you met the standard. You so met the standard. Just You'll, walking off the street, and it's not like they want you to do more. You just do seven, and then you get off the bar, right? Yeah, and save
1: like, it for the other exactly, events, right? Your exactly. other PT. So I was like, I was like, oh, forget that. Like one fine. experience, one little. Yeah, experience like there. the army doesn't want me. Man, I was like, the army doesn't want me. I hate that. So I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to yeah. college.
0: So I went in, into- just like that. Those intersect, you know, those intersections in our life. People who are, I mean, those those guys were probably one, but real immature. So they're probably <laughs> not the cream of the crop, right? Right. And I they, would imagine they are affecting people's lives at the intersection where people are like, I want to join the army. One comment, one bad interaction, and people. Completely go the opposite direction. It's right. crazy.
1: Well, and it was it was it was like the message to me was like the army doesn't want you. Yeah, because you're just not like shredded enough. Wow, and I was like a huge mountain biker, and at that time I rock climbed. Yeah, that's and when stuff. I came to the army. It was
0: not. I mean, it, there there was nothing exceptional about. I mean, they were letting anybody in the army at the right. at that time period, and it's not like there was a war going on, so. It right. was Garrison Army. It's crazy that you had that experience. Yeah,
1: it was like, pass. Oh, <laughs> and man. I was like, okay, the Army doesn't want me.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to college. So I go to college, and I remember, like, I went early in my undergraduate, I took a anthropology course, and one of our assignments was, hey, do a paper on um, a subculture of American culture. And I was like, military. It's a subculture. It's like yeah. its own world unto yep. itself. So. I went to the NAU ROTC program and went to the Army guys. They have an Air Force program, too. But I was like, hey, I want to do a, a paper on a, you know this to totally, explain the excitement and stuff. And the lieutenant colonel there was like, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you. No problem. And it just happened to be that time of the year that they were running their annual lanes. They were mm-hmm. like NAU, ASU, U of A, Embry-Riddle all bring their ROTC programs together up at Camp Navajo by Flagstaff. It's a, I think it's a National Guard base or Army Reserve. And uh, they run all their leadership lanes, right? And so like I'm walking around like taking notes about, and like one of the biggest things was like uh, language, Mm -hmm. right? Like I was like, man, I thought construction workers swore a lot. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I was like man you guys swear a lot and and these were also college kids right because yeah. these are future officers right yeah. and uh i was like man you guys swear a lot it's almost like uh sam Elliott and the big lebowski where he's like i like your style dude but you gotta curse it darn much and he's like what the f you talking about you know it's like that and i was like man you guys have like really foul mouths so not that, like I don't swear, but like it was just like shocking, yeah. Yeah. you know, the amount of vulgarity.
0: <laughs> I was like, whoa. Subculture.
1: Yeah, subculture <laughs> stuff. So I'm like taking all these notes and like everyone's in like woodland camo BDUs and stuff. And I'm like in shorts and a t-shirt and like a floppy boonie hat with a camelback on. And I'm just walking around with them for the day. And I remember um the funniest thing was they were running M16A2s and they had you know limited blanks in 556 right mm-hmm. but they had tons of blanks in 762 for the M60s and so like the cadets were all like so enamored with the M16A2s that like the whole first morning of like this two day event they were running everything on burst right and just like ripping <laughs> through their blanks and so by like late morning of the first day no more 556 blanks they're for out. the cadets they're <laughs> out right and so they're all like bang Bang, bang, like all day long, right? And the op four for these guys was um NAU Air Force ROTC and Arizona National Guard. Yeah. And they had M16A1s and apparently unlimited planks. <laughs> and so they're rocking like full auto. Anytime these guys would hit an ambush, it'd just be this overwhelming like sound of fire, and then they're bang, 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 <laughs> right? And so it was just super funny. And there was this one moment. It's just a funny story where this one cadet was like, uh, they do this thing where they like tap the mags against their helmet to seat all the rounds to the back, right? Well, this one cadet's sitting there and they're like between lanes and and he's getting set up to do this, and he goes to tap his mag on his helmet and he like forgot he took his helmet off. He just like hit himself in the head twice with his mag, right? (laughs) Clack clack, and he like (laughs) grabs his head and he's like ah, and like. And I'm just laughing because I watched it, right? And like five of his buddies are sitting around there and I'm laughing and he's clutching his head like in agony and they think I like hit him or something. And so they're like, all get up to come beat me up. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like he oh did it to gosh. himself, right? And he was like, yeah, I hit myself in the head with a mag. It's like Discovery Channel. Yeah, <laughs> it was super <laughs> funny. And then there was, this is another funny story. So there was a, a guy from Embry-Riddle who was um, a ranger and he was on some rotation for recruitment and he was at Embry-Riddle or no, ROT rota- yeah. ROTC rotation at Embry-Riddle. And for some reason we just hit it off and he was a really cool guy. And so like, I just stuck to him for the day. And I remember this one time they were moving in this patrol and they were supposed to like maneuver to recon and find a machine gun nest and then take it out, Right. And so we're like at the very back of the column, like the front of these guys is like a hundred yards in front of us. And we're walking through Ponderosa Forest. There's not a lot of undergrowth. You can see really far, Ponderosa Forest. And like, we're at the back of this column and like 200 yards down the way, like you can see like, that looks like a machine gun nest. So I I turn to the ranger guy and I go, is that it? And he goes, yeah, I think that's it. Hmm. And the the point element of this formation is like a hundred yards in front of us and they don't see it right <laughs> and I'm like and he goes hey watch this and so he pulls out an artillery simulator yeah. and he throws it right cuz their SOPs are like to run like 500 yards to get out of the artillery yeah. string right so he, phew, pop you know and they all just run and they run like right to the machine gun nest
0: oh my god and like
1: the op is in the nest with two m60s and they're just like <laughs> what is happening and so they get like within like 10 yards of it and they just <laughs> wop, 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 wop. open up on all these guys and that ranger guy walks up and he like tears his hat off he starts hitting people on the helmets like you're all effing dead like, <laughs> like that. i was like that was amazing right and so it's just laughing my head off and i was like oh man these are the future officers of the military it was like a little it's concerning so i was like at some point these guys are gonna get dialed so that we all don't die. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And so then um, at some point, that Ranger guy, he lets me shoot the M60, right? With yeah. blanks. He's like, don't tell anybody that I let you shoot this. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> it's just blanks. Like, it's blank. yeah. <laughs> what's the big deal? Everyone's shooting guns. <laughs> and so we go to move on. It's like the last maneuver is this huge, like everybody's together in one element. All four schools are moving together in this huge element. And they're moving... Through, and there's like this kind of mountain on Camp Navajo and they're moving and they kind of move up the guts of this one drainage in this mountain. And I remember being like, why are we doing this? Mm. This is like where you wouldn't move, right? Just like by common sense. Yeah. Right. Scout <laughs> well, stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. And
1: so like the Op 4 had literally set up like military crest on all the ridges in this amazing like Bowl shaped ambush wow. to shoot down into, right? Well, nobody wants to carry the M60 because it's like really heavy. It weighs like 23 pounds, right? Yeah. With like a starter link on it. And so everyone's like, I don't want to carry the pig. I don't want to carry the pig. And I was like, I'll carry it. And everyone's looking at the ranger sergeant and they're like, can he do that? And he's like, sure. So, so I'm carrying the M60, right? <laughs> In hiking boots and shorts and a t shirt and a yeah. floppy hat and a camelback, and everyone else is in combat gear. And so we walk up, we walk literally right into the middle of this like chorus of ambush on both sides yeah. of this ravine, right? And so I drop down with the M60 and I just start returning fire, right? <laughs> and that dude walks up behind me and he like hits me on the head. And he's like, What the F you doing? And I was like, I'm returning fire. I'm the only dude with a gun with bullets. And he goes okay finish the belt and then get off that gun <laughs> he was like really cool so i had to finish it and then i had to get off the gun but like i had that experience i was like this was amazing it was like so fun you know yeah. i do this paper and stuff and i was like oh i wanted this like yeah. this sucks whatever you know but whatever i guess the army doesn't want me so then like a year later 9-11 happens and i was like
0: hmm are you like it's time
1: yeah, I like yeah. I feel like it's time, and, and I am a big NPR guy. I know a lot of people. Murder, I'm an NPR guy too. Murder, thank you. Yeah,
0: people <laughs> get ups. I'm like it's great, it's, especially with the I stories. I think it's really balanced yeah. in
1: radio. So anyway, um, I hear the story on NPR, and they're like, "Hey, there's this new program the Army has called 18 X-ray," hmm. and I'm like, "I want that!" Wow. Right. And this was uh, now this was O three. And I was um, a junior in college, so I was, like, really approaching the end of my degree and looking at grad school coming up and stuff like that. So I was like, this is my thing. Like, I want to go do this. Um, And at that time, like, I think we had just invaded Iraq in the spring of 03. Yeah. And um, I I had become friends with a a buddy um, who was he was in 160th sore, And so I kind of like got to put like a bunch of ideas past him and stuff. And he actually, he was on the helicopter that Neil Roberts fell out of in Afghanistan. And that, when that helicopter crashed, he injured his head. And that's what got him out of the military. Super cool guy. I really love that guy. But he was like a kind of a good little mentor, like, okay, here's what you want to do and stuff like that. So I go down to the recruiter and i'm like yeah i want to do 18 x-ray and i start meeting with these two recruiter guys and they they give me like the mini asvab and i was a junior in college at the time and i crushed it (laughs) like just like like in 96 or something i can't remember but it was like high 90s and they're like you can do anything you want like what do you want to do and i'm like 18 x-ray they're like no 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 you can do anything you want in the army like you could go intelligence. You could be a helicopter pilot. They wanted could, the technical. They wanted you yeah. to do something technical. Yeah, yeah. and the, the thing I remember they pushed really hard with me was dental. Like you could be a dentist. And I remember looking at them. And I'm like, I can be a dentist in the civilian world. Like I'm only joining the army to jump out of helicopters and blow shit up. Period. Like yeah. that is yeah. the only reason I'm joining the army. Yeah. And they were like so frustrated. With yeah, because they have the they yeah. take the highest
0: aptitude guys and fill mm. the lowest number of things
1: right right wow, yeah and so i was just like I, they hated me and i was like i don't care like this is the only reason yeah. i'm joining this is it i want the 18 x-ray so they were getting me set up to like you know go do the real the full asvab and go through maps and all that type of stuff like that and i remember coming into um the recruiting station. And uh, there was a new recruiter in there that I'd never seen before. And he was a Navajo guy. You could just tell just by looking at him because I lived on the res and I was in Native American studies for my minor. Um, and I also took Navajo language as my college language, which was insane. Really? And yeah, it was just insane. It was just like, that language is so hard. <laughs> like yeah. I was like, you know, you take four semesters. It was like A, A, B, C, had I wow. kept going, it would have been like D F until wow. like it just got way over my head. What
0: is it about that culture that attracts you to? Because I'm I'm very interested in Native American cultures too. And when I whenever I go through the Navajo reservation, I feel this like uh, empathy for Native yeah. Americans because oh, absolutely. because what you see, it's like yeah. you know, you, you pass the the wooden pine you know carpet rug shop. Or one person's out there selling, mm-hmm. you know, a homemade Navajo rug, and then the gas yeah. station, and then you go into the little town, and you have like nothing but McDonald's and Burger King, and it, you see the health of the mm-hmm. Navajo on the reservation. It's like, man, yeah. what have we done to these people? Totally, I I feel guilt, and I'm Asian. I don't, you know, I I don't really harbor any, any known. um, You don't carry as much white guilt as me. Yeah, I don't. So I see that, and it just breaks my heart because I, I, you know, studying history, obviously, and understanding their history, it's like, man, this they got put in a bad situation.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, and I think you know, for me, part of it was you know coming from just being a white kid in Seattle, playing in rock bands, and going and living on the reservation and getting to know people. And making friends, they were just, like, actually super friendly. You would think there would be a lot of animosity, like, oh, white man, like yeah. all this stuff. Like I rarely encountered that in all my time out there. And it was super rare. Everybody was super friendly and just, like, really funny. Like, they have great sense of humor. Like, I love the Native sense of humor. And also love, you know, they just had this very fluid lifestyle that was, like, not living by the watch, you know. Like, if something came up, if you had an appointment and grandma needed to like be taken down to the doctor, like you blew your appointment and took your grandma somewhere. Oh, you know, so-and-so needs to go shopping and gallop. Let's go take them. You know, it was just a very fluid way of living life. And it was just really kind of a cool, different experience, you know? And again, the humor and I and I really like admired the resiliency like coming from a place that was even though i didn't grow up affluent i grew grew up around a lot of affluent kids and i saw a lot of affluence up in seattle area i mean microsoft was like kicking off at that time and and all that so um it was shocking to me you know people talk about like oh third world conditions and third world poverty and i remember getting there and i'm like Uh, there's literally a third world nation in our backyard. Yeah. Like how do people not know about this? I mean, I, I knew people that had dirt floors. I knew people that like lived in old trailers where like the side of the wall, like got damaged and like blown out. so they like nailed up a piece of plywood over it and they still lived there. No electricity, no running water. They hauled water and all this stuff. And it was just like, these people are tough.
0: Yeah. And they're off grid. There's because yes. there is no, their own infrastructure doesn't exist. So yeah. it's not like they get run out to their own Walmart, right. you know, no, totally. and then displaced from that to go into town would be for some people in the middle of the res hours drive just to get there. Yeah, it's crazy. absolutely.
1: Uh, yeah. Hours. And so I just like really enjoyed the people and the culture and, and all that stuff. And I just had a lot of respect for it. Like I wasn't like, I don't want to like be dances with wolves or anything. I'm not like I'm a white native or anything yeah, like that. Or like, now, uh, I'm Cherokee, you know, yeah. <laughs> like one that everybody, everybody said, yeah, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren, unfortunately pulled that one too. Right. <laughs> unfortunately for her. And, uh, so yeah, so I just really enjoyed that culture. So I walk into the recruiting office and there's this new guy in there. He's Navajo. And as I walked past him, I was like, yeah, which is like, Hey, what's up, buddy? And he, he was looked, he in shock? <laughs> he yeah, been he, been like, oh, he looked at me like I was a neon giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was just like, and he was like, oh, yeah, like said hi back, yeah. you know. And I went and sat down with the two recruiters I've been working with, and, and they are like, okay, we're going to go get your paperwork together. And uh, they at the time they were in this recruiting station that was kind of by the Safeway up there. And there was a big window in there. You could see where they went and got all their paperwork together. And so you could see back into this little room. I don't know what it was before the army took it over, but they repurposed it. And so I'm just sitting there at that desk and, and he calls me over in Navajo. He's like, you know, come on over here. And so I sit down and he's just like, What is your story? Like, what are you about? You know, where did you learn how to speak Navajo? So I kind of told him a little bit. Yeah, I took it in college and I've I've lived on the res and stuff like that. And he's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm joining the army. And he's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, "Uh, 18 x-ray. And he looks at me and he looks at my hand and he's like, are you married? And I said, yeah. And he goes, do you have any kids? It's like, yeah, I've got three. At that point I had three kids. Oh, like
0: That's right. You can get in, right?
1: No, I, I could have. Yeah. Right. But so I have three kids and like I'm going through college, like, you know, going to school during the day, working full time at night, yeah. taking out student loans, just struggling to get through college. <laughs> yeah. And so in some ways I'm like, army is gonna be like break for me. Yeah. Cause like I have three little kids, I'm going to school full time, oh, I'm yeah. working full time at nights. It's like it's a grind for years, right? And so I was like, yeah, I have three little kids. He's like, how old are they? And I'm like, oh, they're like, you know, four, two, and and like newly born. Like, well, it was like five, three, and one. Like, that was how old my kids were at the time. And he goes, get out of here. Special forces destroys families. Wow. And just like as serious as he could (laughs) say it to me, right? Yeah. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about, right? And so this guy, as I start talking to him, he, he gives me a little bit of his backstory. Like, he had gone through Special Forces selection, and he got, like, the dreaded 29-day drop, right? Which, yeah. I, like, he maybe got peered out, basically, right? Yeah. Like, thanks, but no thanks.
0: It's a 29-day no, at that time, non-select. It's 21 days now, but it was back then. It was oh, probably 29. I went yeah. through 29 days. Yeah. I believe,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so... He was kind of embittered I think from his experience. Yeah. And for whatever reason, like he thought I was a cool dude cuz I spoke Navajo and he saw that respect I had for his culture and he was like helping me out. And he was like you get out of here and don't come back. And he and I was like no 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 wait, you know. Listen, I get it like but my family's like my biggest priority in the whole world. I love my family. It'll be fine. Like I'm going to like go through basic and then my family will move on base and then I'll go through all the training, I'll do jump yeah. school and selection and all that stuff like that. And, and like, you know, I'll see him on nights and on the weekends. And like, I just had this like total fantasy picture that I was like, you know, a soldier's like a nine to five job. and yeah. <laughs> Like you go yeah. home to your I was family. Gonna say, he's and I, right
0: in every way. It's yeah, true in a way. Yeah. You know?
1: And so he starts going like, you're an idiot. Yeah, He's like, that is not how it's going to be. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, your family's not going to live on base. Your family's not going to live on base until you get assigned a terminal unit. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, where are they going to live? And he's like, wherever you want them to live, just like now, they could live here. They, yeah. You can move them to Georgia if you want. Like the army's not going to move them. And I'm just like,
0: what? Yeah. <laughs> just like, That's right. He's That's like true.
1: crushing my soul. Right. Wow. And so I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 but wait. And then he just keeps laying it on. Well, then you're going to go to this school. And then you're going to go to this school. He's like, this is like a two-year training pipeline, dude. And I was you're gonna not... say two years minimum. Yeah. Right? And he's like, you're not going to be with your family hardly at all for that two yep, years. You won't see him. And he's like, and then guess what, bro? You're going to war. Because this is a special forces war. That's another year. That's three years without your family. And wow. I am just like, these guys never told me any of that. And he's wow. like, that's because they don't know. Not everybody knows this stuff. And I was just, like, crushed. But I was, like, I don't know. It just, like, resonated with me. Like, there was something about it. I was, like, dude, this guy is, like, right. And it's, like, I was, like, man, I have three little kids. Like, what am I thinking? You never would have
0: saw him again. I mean, it's just crazy because you'll be gone.
1: I need to ditch my family and, like, you know, who knows, maybe end up a divorce statistic or maybe end up killed. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that is what you put online when you'd go yeah. in the military and it, that is what it is. And so I was just like, so I stood up and I looked at the guys that were in the little thing and I waited to get their attention and they kind of look over at me and I was like, I just waved to them. Cause like, I wanted this so bad, Mike, I just wanted yeah. it so bad. I was like, this is finally my time. And this is what, and I'd like read Eric Haney's book before that. Yeah. And I was like, this is it. It's a great book. This is it. <laughs> right? It ends a little dark, but like, yeah. it is a great book. And, but I was like, this is it for me. Like, yeah, I want to do this. And so I just wave at the guys and just turn around to walk out that door. And I don't know what was going on in that like recruiting station. Cause he was brand new. I'd never seen him before. And I've been there a few times and they like, look at me and then they look at him and he like leans back and he just throws up two middle fingers at these guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know what this I'm is about, here. but I am out of here. Like, I, it's not of my business and wow. I should just leave. So I, I left and I went home just like totally crushed. I told my wife about the whole thing. And my wife, I could just see like the relief on oh, her yeah. face, right? Because yeah. she, again, she's like, hey, whatever you want to do, I support you. Yeah. And But like when I told her, I was like, I'm not doing it, honey. Here's what this guy told me. And she was just like, whew. Like you just Man. see the weight come off of her, like Your life with her so three, three little babies and yeah. her husband's Oof. about to try and join the army and go into special forces. And so I was just like, okay, that's a pretty big sign. And she was really good about being supportive. But when I saw that, I was like, okay, this is the right thing. And I had to like, I like had this like, I felt like my tor- my soul was like torn in half because like Oof. those recruiters kept calling me for like two months <laughs> trying to get me back right, and I, they just keep leaving me these messages and I'm like I just can't call them back, I can't call them back because oh. I just want to do this too bad, but I, I just couldn't do it, so I just avoided yeah. them and finally the calls died off and
0: that's smart like, on you though.
1: I was like no I'm gonna I'm gonna do this psycho- psychology thing and and yeah. you know so then went to grad school and finished that loved it uh, started my career in community mental health, which is, uh, uh, in Arizona, we have access, which is kind of our version of Medicaid. Yeah. Uh, or Medicare. I forget. Medicare is for older people. And Medicaid is like, um, government sponsored insurance for people with low income. And so, uh, primarily the people we saw at that clinic were people on access. I mean, like 99% those are the people we were working with. So very low income people, really good variety of people cases. It's also kind of the deep end of the pool for behavioral health disorders, right? And kind of more severe stuff. And uh, did a lot of cool stuff there, did a, you know adult depression anxiety groups, worked with adults, worked with couples, worked with a lot of teenagers. And also at the time that agency that I worked at um, did services down in Havasupai, which is this amazing little native community that's in a little side Canyon off of the Grand Canyon. And there's this stream that runs through there year round. The the water's the color of turquoise and they have these amazing waterfalls. That's on the res? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the Havasupai Indian Reservation. It's a very small tribe. There's like maybe 300 people in the village at any given time. Whereas like the the Navajo tribe is like over 300,000 in population. Um, so it's it's a huge contrast, like it's a teeny little village and a huge tribe. But, uh, So I worked down there like once a one week a month for a couple of years and stuff like that. Doing mental health. Uh Doing behavioral behavioral health services locally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mental health. It's interchangeable, those terms. Um, So I really enjoyed that experience. But then at some point I had the opportunity given to me to go work in a residential treatment program for troubled teenage girls uh, in Rimrock, Arizona. It was called Copper Canyon Academy at the time. Now it's, I think, Arizona Sky Academy. And... Complete night and day. It was like troubled teen girls. So these are the girls that are like come from super rich families. It was $6,800 a month to put your child in treatment. Wow. And a typical length of stay was 10 months for us. So you're talking like 80 grand to put your kid in treatment for 10 months.
0: They're they're inside the treatment facility for Mm -hmm. 10 months.
1: Yeah, they live there. We had a school there. We did treatment there. It was a really good program, a cool program. Like, We got referrals from Dr. Phil. We had girls that had, like, been on Dr. Phil's show come through our program. Was drugs
0: part of that, or was it... Often, yeah, Yeah. drugs. um, The length of time just tells me that, because you're trying to get them to...
1: yep, some of it. A lot of it was... There was a lot of substance abuse, but there was also a lot of sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, like, really dysfunctional family dynamics, um, a lot of sexual abuse. Um, A lot of these girls would be using drugs and then end up in really, like compromised party situations and then be like group assaulted by a bunch of guys and stuff like that so really really tough stuff a lot of cutting um a lot of depression anxiety kind of that type of stuff mm. but yeah really really kind of intense population and stuff but you know i remember working in that community mental health center and starting to be like man it just i mean i had clients sometimes that were literally homeless they're like camped out in the woods and they come into town and see me for their appointment go back and camp out in the woods and and all this stuff like that and i remember sometimes being like man like if just these people had some resources like some of their issues would go away like and i remember being like man like if maybe you had some money it would kind of insulate you from behavioral health problems and then I go work in this treatment facility, like and I was like, "Has nothing to do with it, right? Has nothing to do with it." Like equal opportunity, equal opportunity yeah. a selector of people, yeah. And because I mean, there were these people that had just as severe behavioral health disorders, and they were some of the wealthiest people out there.
0: Is there a sense that there's potentially more of a a risk with the more you have? I always feel like people are famous or have more money, more money, more problems. No money, more problems, yeah. right?
1: I mean, I think to to a degree, but I mean, you know, any anybody who's ever been poor, you know, like yeah. I've been on food stamps before. And those so are real, pro- real three problems. three little kids, those are real problems yeah. too. So I, I just think that in some cases, um, at least a lot of times what I saw with these kids was their parents were so driven in their careers that they had very little time for their children. Their children were very often being raised by nannies and, and opas or au pairs or whatever that word is or whatever. Yeah. But, um, and so they were kind of neglected, but they also had plenty of resources to go get into whatever trouble they wanted to get into. And they kind of had these entitled opinions about themselves. So yeah, I can do whatever I want and stuff like that. Maybe they'd got into a little trouble, but like maybe mom and dad smoothed it over with like an expensive lawyer or whatever. And then they start to think, yeah, I'm pretty untouchable. And then they get into deeper trouble and deeper trouble and mm-hmm stuff like that. So I don't think it's necessarily like rich people even have more or more severe behavioral health disorders. But I think that there are things about that lifestyle that's almost like, be careful what you wish for, because, you know, you are putting yourself in a place where, yeah, you're going to have a lot of leisure time and you're going to have a lot of spending money and not always do people do good things with that. You know what I mean? Uh, What was the idle hands or tools of the devil or an idle mind is the devil's mind, workshop yeah. is or yeah. whatever, right? Those old sayings. And so I, I think there's quite a bit of that. And so then after that, and, and I I enjoyed working with, I enjoy working with adolescents a lot. That's partly why I have long hair, um, I think, for a
0: lot Did she of- Does use the hippie more relatable?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily relatable because, you know, I don't think young kids really wear like- their hair like me, necessarily. They're not like, I don't want to look like a 90s rocker. You know what I mean? That's not a cool thing anymore. (laughs) But like, I think they see me as like, not total establishment, not just some other boring old middle-aged guy. Yeah. Yeah. Convention. Yeah. And so like, they walk in my office and there's like electric guitar hanging on the wall and like a poster of Jimi Hendrix and Aaron's got long hair and like, "Mm, okay, maybe he's not just some Boring, normy, you know, middle aged therapist guy. And so I, I think that does help quite a bit with adolescence. And also in native culture, you know, a lot of native cultures, men have long hair. Um, sign of respect. It's, a, it's also a sign of wisdom. Wisdom. Yeah. I know that like sometimes I get in a lot of trouble at work um, when I cut my hair, like I'll get a trim. And because uh, now I work at an urban Indian center called Native Americans for Community Action. I've been working there for about seven years. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really enjoy it. And uh, I know that sometimes I'll come to work and especially the more traditional of my coworkers will be like, you cut your hair. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> You're losing your wisdom. And I'm like, uh, remember that I'm white? It doesn't work that way for me. <laughs> like, it's not the same thing.
0: Yeah. I like to... and. You know, one, I want to. I'm so interested in psychotherapy, but for even for me, my understanding, I'd like um, you to define what exactly psychotherapy is.
1: Okay, so I mean, this is going to be my definition of psychotherapy, but uh, it should be pretty close. But psychotherapy is really uh, an umbrella of techniques and strategies. Uh, primarily through talk therapy and other things like relaxation, breathing training and other interventions to reduce the symptoms and, you know, hopefully ultimately totally alleviate the symptoms related with behavioral health disorders, things like depression, anxiety.
0: Um, is that like a counts? Is it, is it more, uh, along the lines of like a verbal or oral yes. conversation? That's yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, and some people aren't going to like me saying this and some people are going to really love me saying this in my profession, but like, um, you know, everybody kind of rolls out with their new model here, there and like, Oh, this is the thing that's going to like be the miracle miracle cure. You even hear that sometimes in, you know, advertisements for trainings when you go to do CEUs, like, do you want miracle results with your clients and stuff like that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm already turned off, but you know, Yeah. But like like yeah, I'm not a big believer in that. I think, you know, here we are, you know, roughly 200 years from Sigmund Freud and and I think in a lot of ways like he kind of hit it on the head that the big thing is that it's really healing for people is just to have somebody who's empathetic and willing to listen and wants to be helpful. And, you know, a lot of people put out their studies about, well, this intervention for this disorder versus this intervention for that disorder. And um, there are people like uh, Scott Miller and Barry Duncan, I believe, and, and they are people at all, you know, Miller Duncan at all that have done a really good job kind of like showing that like the way that sometimes we study and research behavioral health studies is not really an appropriate use of the scientific method. And the, you know, when you do meta studies on the effects of psychotherapy, what you're really seeing is that like, the most important things in treatment are the relationship that the Mm -hmm. person has with their therapist and the attributes of the individual, like what do they bring to treatment, right? Because it's their life, they're the ones that have to apply the things that we are suggesting to them sometimes. And I don't control that outside of a session. I don't control a person's life. Like, it's really up to them to be able to go and, like, put these things into effect and change their own lives. It's, you know, the super old therapist joke, but, like, you know, how many therapists does it take to change somebody? And I think it comes from the old kind of racist nationalist Pollock jokes, right? Like, how many Pollocks does it take to change a light bulb? But it's, how many therapists does it take to change someone? And the punchline is just one or sorry to change a light bulb. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? And the punchline is just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. Mm. Right. Because yeah. you know, like as therapists, sometimes you might think of yourself as a change agent, but you're really not. You're you're offering an invitation to change, but they're the person that really is going to affect the change in their life. And and sometimes if we don't really see that accurately, then we're kind of missing Identifying where the real power in the therapy relationship is—it's with the individual. It's—it's your life, and you know, like, yeah, there's ownership and responsibility for you to change, but also a recognition that almost everybody has that ability to do that, right? In in an appropriately supported way.
0: It's like you're a mediator to change. It's almost like you're the media. What's interesting about this topic is. I'm closely connected to psychotherapy and counseling because I've all the, in fact, I just had a conversation with Sean Ryan, who's, you know, we were agency contractors together. He was a Navy SEAL. But Sean said uh, the only thing that's helped him out of all the meds, all the different things that the veteran affairs system threw at him was he got a counselor, but it wasn't just a, a psychotherapist who was just counseling on psychological things, what it was, it was somebody who understood what he had been through. Right. Kind of, who understood special operations guys. Yep. Because if you have a psychotherapist, like I had a, I had a real good therapist in, in uh, 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 Texas, in San Antonio, Texas. The guy blo- had both of his legs blown off in Vietnam, and he was a long-range patrol uh, LERP, Army LERP guy. And so immediately we had a connection and understanding combat and our roles in it. Yeah. Instead of having like a therapist who was, I'm so sorry about those experiences. Can you tell me more? It was like, hey, man, we both know what we were there for. Sure. Let's construct this or let's, you know, guide this in a different direction. Yeah. which is, which is you know, unique to therapy.
1: Totally. And, and I think that that message doesn't get put out enough. I think that a lot of times people are like, well, a therapist is a therapist is a therapist. Like, really? Is a mechanic a mechanic a mechanic? Is a doctor a doctor? I mean, there are good doctors and bad doctors and good mechanics and bad mechanics and good therapists and bad therapists. Like, you know, do your research, shop around, and you have every right. I think a lot of times people are too polite to therapists too, really. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, oh, you know, they're they're here to help, so I'm not going to tell them if they're not being very helpful or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you should. And it's your, a service, right? Your yeah. therapist should be durable enough to take that feedback, and if they're not, then go get another freaking therapist because mm-hmm. they probably shouldn't be doing this work if they're not durable enough to take the feedback, right? But, I mean... A lot of times when we talk about, you know, in behavioral health, one of the competencies that's really expected of us is what we call multicultural competency, right? So, you know, if you work with any specific subpopulations, you should know things about the culture, right? And you should do that research and that that life experience type work on your own time, because it's not your client's time when they come in to a session and sit in your office. That's not your time to learn that's their time. They're not there for you. Right. But sometimes therapists will do that. Like, Oh, well tell me a little bit about what it's like to be you. Like, what's it like to be a gay person? What's it like to be a native American or whatever? Like, no, it's a completely unethical and inappropriate use of that time. Like it's their time. Like if you need to know that stuff, you got to go do that somewhere else and don't use their time for that. And I, that's the same. Like we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, I did that paper on multiculturalism with the military, right? Like it's a subculture. Like if you're going to work with vets and and military guys, like you should know that. And if you don't, then don't work with those guys. Like you shouldn't, right? Yeah. And and if you're a veteran and you have a therapist that doesn't have that competency, then don't work with them. Go get somebody else.
0: I remember uh, going into the hallway to get a evaluated, like a psychological evaluation for, from VA and I walked down the hallway, and they were doing construction as I was bypassing them, and they were doing a little bit of demo. And as I walked into the therapist's office, I went to close the door behind me. And as I shut it and turned back towards her, I heard a loud, loud boom. And so I turned around and looked, like cracked the door, looked out just to make sure what it was, right. and it was the construction being done. So I shut the door, and yeah. she looked at me, and she was standing there almost in shock. And she's like, you're a, a little jumpy, are we? And I said, nah, um and then I'd like looked at her and I, I I perceived like she was taking that as, oh, so this guy's got some problems. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's jumpy. And I thought to myself, you know, after the fact, if the person knew my background, then that would be looked at as being vigilant. Right. Not even as hypervigilance. Right. Just being normal, which yeah. would be in the in my right. job, that would be completely normal. Right, you hear a noise, yeah. you investigate Key what the noise into is, a possible threat. hone in, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. just like a normal right. animal would in the yeah, wild. Absolutely, identify it and yeah. then positively uh, identify or um, determine what it potentially isn't, right. and then continue your life. But she probably looked at me as like, "Oh, this is uh, another victim or another casualty of war."
1: Right. Well, and you know, I mean. And I think that's too bad, right? That's an unfortunate experience because even if she's right, maybe you maybe you were hyper vigilant, right? But wouldn't that be normal mm. for you? Yeah. Yeah, it would be normal for you. And instead of making it like look all pathologized, like you yeah. have this problem. It'd be super
0: abnormal not to do that. Totally. So if I didn't do it, she she should be like, yeah. Well, why wouldn't you do turn yeah. around and see what that is?
1: Yeah, like if, if I knew your background and you came to see me and you did that or it, more likely if that didn't happen, I'd be like, how much medication are you on anyway? Yeah, it's <laughs> an indication of some other problem. I would really expect yeah. you to have kind of... How's your hearing? into that boom, you yeah. know, yeah,
0: right? And uh, so, well, just with... That's an interesting thing, because when you were talking about the definition of psychotherapy and as it relates to, like, the conversation, the whole time I was thinking, how does that culture and Native American culture affect that conversation because it's completely different i gotta imagine the factors culturally mm-hmm. uh from a native americans experience and growing up maybe even genetically imprinted in their dna of how they operate in their world is completely different than a, a white person's problem or a, a black person's problem even in america
1: yeah i mean it certainly can be right but uh, you know the thing i think we all have to remember and learn i mean i remember when i was taking courses in college as a Native American studies or applied indigenous studies minor and learning things about the history of the United States with Native Americans and being like a mind grenade, you know, like what? Yeah, it's crazy. I've never heard of that. Crazy. You they know? don't teach it. I, they, no, I never learned it. No, they don't teach it, right? I learned learn it myself. Because the victors wrote the history books, yeah. you know what I mean? And some of that stuff doesn't make the United States look particularly great. And so, you know, when you're talking about smallpox blankets and border, uh, you know, the boarding school experience and all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, what was originally attempted as a genocide of the Native American people by policy, by the United States government. Trail of tears. Yeah. Yeah. It it turned into a cultural genocide with the border school or border um, boarding school movements and stuff like that, where you Know the kids were brought in and they made them cut their hair, they made them wear white clothes. If they spoke their native language, they were severely punished. I mean, I've met older ladies that are uh, passed on now, but that you know were chained up to a boiler in the basement of a boarding school for three days because they spoke Navajo. Wow, and they were fed bread and water, right? Oh my god, because they spoke their native language, right? Yeah. The Navajo language, which was you know later used in World War II to help defeat the japanese right mm-hmm. as a code right and those guys were heroes for providing that service and i drove
0: by the when you drive by on i can't remember what highway it is but they have a small it just says like the base it's like that old vet base it's like a veterinarian clinic and it has like code breaker or a code Navajo talker code talker yeah and it's very like like a guy wrote it with a sharpie you know <laughs> and it's like really the you know, the, some of the greatest history of this country and in, in victory yeah. of Americans coming together that, you know, was the only thing that I've seen that's relevant um, that has kept that is the movie that was done on it. And it's like that movie, which through time is still archived, if it's not talked about frequently or it's mm-hmm. not seen about frequently driving on the road, it's forgotten. Right. It's like that's so important, but we just, it's kind of just... Such a small segment of our history or understanding of history now.
1: Totally. And, you know, and I think, but because of all these efforts to turn Native people into Americans, just period, like a big umbrella, make them all, you know, whitewash or whatever you want to call it, but just Americans instead of Native Americans, you know, there's a a very broad spectrum of assimilation, right? Because there are Native people out there that know less about their culture and their and speak less of their language than I do, right? And I actually don't really speak that much. And I don't claim to be an insider on the cultural knowledge either, right? But they've grown up off reservation. It's never really been important in their family. Maybe they were raised Christian or whatever. And it's like, no, they're they're just Americans. You know what I mean? And so part of that multicultural compensation is knowing that just because a person like might present a certain way on the outside is like, Hey, you look like Mike, you look like you're Asian. So I know what I know about Asians and I'm going to treat you according to this picture that I have in my mind about Asians. Well, maybe that's not really been a big part of your upbringing. Right. Right. I need to get to know you to find out if that is or not. Right. And then, okay, cool. I'm glad I have that cultural knowledge so that we can speak some of the same language so that I can be understanding and empathetic of your background and, and like avoid like missteps in your treatment. Like, you know, for a lot of Native Americans, there's, there's kind of what you refer to a lot as like a death taboo, right? Like we don't talk about the deceased we don't go to cemeteries and stuff like that. It's not a thing to do. And and yet, you know, you'll have clients come to you and they're dealing with significant grief and loss over the death of a loved one, like their grandfather or something. And I'm not going to be like, okay, well, let's let's spend a lot of time talking about your grandfather. And I want you to write a letter to your grandfather, things unsaid that you wish you could have said, and then go to his graveside and read it to him there probably not going to do that with some natives. With some natives, that would be totally fine. Mm-hmm. But with some of them, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, I need to know where they're at, right? On their level of cultural identity, do they identify more traditional or, or more Western culture or whatever? And and, and I, that's true with vets. It's true with Asian people. It's true with black people, whatever. You know what I mean? Like,
0: is this a, is, is like therapy outlined in a... Substructure that's per session, with an overall, you know, objective to the end state. Like, I, I, what is yes. what is the end state, and how does that process work?
1: So, there there definitely are very like um, formulaic therapies out there, and there are a lot of practice or there are many practitioners out there that are like the formulaic therapies. Like, okay, you come to session we set the agenda for the session, we're going to do this today, you're going to go do this at home during the week and whatever. And that's, that's fine. And some people really like that approach and whatever. I, me personally, that's not my clinical training background. It's also really in a lot of ways, like I think research shows that again, it's not really the interventions that you use. It's the relationship that you have with that person. And learning to help them identify their own resources, skills, and talents, and using them to greater effect for themselves. And also, like, giving people space and opportunity to cognitively reframe things in their mind that are a lot of times are negatively and poorly understood, right? We we have a lot of distorted thoughts and cognitions that we pick up in our lives. Like, I'm fat, I'm ugly, or nobody loves me, or, you know, everybody's doing better than me, or all these different things out there that we have, or some maybe something really horrible happened to us in our youth, and we feel like it's our fault, mm-hmm. right? And going back and and really looking at those things honestly and trying to help a person discover a more accurate narrative, yeah. a more real narrative for what it is, so that they can move forward with that and, like, understand it in its appropriate light Instead of in this really negatively distorted light, that is sometimes unconsciously and sometimes very consciously yeah. steering their behavior. that you've repeated and choices. again and again and again and again. Absolutely. In your head.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because it makes sense to me that the conversation alone could be very therapeutic in just re-establishing and re-understanding mm-hmm. the the you know the the conglomerate of smashed memories and information mm-hmm. and then kind of extracting that and defraggling it and then figuring out a way to kind of optimize and understand exactly what you're thinking. Is it, is it justified? Is it not justified? Here's the reasons why you think that. And when Sean told me about this uh, counseling session, I actually talked to the doctor um, and she, and, in finding a therapist that would sit down, but understand my background was key because every therapist I had talked to before that didn't really understand me. And so when when they when I said, uh, how many times have you been to combat? Nine times. Oh oh my God. That was typical of the reaction like, Oh my God. So this is you're you're actually talking about
1: like nine deployments. Yeah. And hundreds of combat hundreds of combat
0: events. And they're like, (laughs) okay, this is and it's it's weird because the the therapists who aren't trained to deal with our kind of background. Right. they're overwhelmed, it seems to me, because they're just like, so wait a minute, how many, so how many times have you been uh, in a situation where people were lost? And that could be a dozen, you know, for me, it's a dozen. And so they say, what do you mean, like a dozen times, like in separate instances? Yes, a dozen times in separate. And they're like, okay, so I'm used, uh, the most I've had is like two, because injury, whatever it is, this is very different. And then they spend so much time trying to figure, like you said, figure that out, when on their own time they should have been figuring it out right. who we are or what what our backgrounds right. uh, are made of when you are how does it how does the the native american culture differ in your approach and understanding the subculture because did you have to go in and Use the time that you were before college as in that immersion and use that experience to give you a frame of reference? Or did you have to start over and then kind of reframe and redefine your understanding of subculture before you can go in there and start talking to people?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think the first thing, you know, that's really important to understand when we're talking about Native American culture is there isn't one Native American culture, right? Like, there are hundreds of Native American separate, distinct wow. tribal okay. identities, yeah. right? Like All different, too, Yeah, right? all different, right? Just here in Arizona, you know, and I'll take, you know, two of the most common ones up here in the north of Arizona, right? But the Hopi and the Navajo, right? Navajo are a huge tribe. Um, they're kind of a cousin tribe to the Apache. They speak Athabascan language. Traditionally, they were raiders, uh, nomads, and hunter-gatherers, right? Whereas the Hopi were Pueblo culture. They were very sedentary, very agriculture. They stayed in one spot, they raised crops, all that type of stuff like that, right? So, and they're literally the closest neighbors to each other and their lifestyles are completely different. And they fought sometimes and, you know, didn't get along sometimes and stuff like that. And so, I mean, I think it it is really important to understand that, like, native culture is this incredibly diverse patchwork of different cultural backgrounds and stuff like that. And, and so, yeah, like the personal experience that I had living on and around the Navajo and Hopi reservations was really key and instrumental, but then going and getting that education at the professional level, right. At the college collegiate level um, to be able to like study with native American professors, read, perspectives of native american authors and you know view native american art and other cultural things like that that are important and whatever and and see that like okay this is really diverse so when i'm treating a native american i'm not like treating a native american i'm treating a an apache right and i'm also needing to be aware that if i'm treating an apache like what is their level of acculturation how important is their cultural identity to them and what do I need to know about that after hours to help, you know, make sure that I can express understanding to them and try not to get into too many cultural missteps. And I'm not saying you can never take a a cultural misstep. Of course, like, you know, therapists are human beings. None of us are perfect. And, you know, you shouldn't expect that of your therapist and your therapist shouldn't like give that vibe. Like I'm perfect and I don't make mistakes. If that's your therapist, you probably don't want to work with them. I wouldn't. Yeah. Right. But I think it's the genuineness and the desire to understand that gets you through those misunderstandings, right? When a person sees that, oh, that was just a genuine misstep, you didn't mean anything by it, and you really are an ally and you want to understand, they can roll with those with you, no problem, mm-hmm. right? But it's just the, it's the stuff where, you know, you want to be right or you want to cover your tracks. Like, if I make a mistake with somebody in therapy, I call it out myself, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I just stepped on your toes there. That was totally my bad. I and own it. you know what I mean yeah, don't make it like eh, I didn't really do that, and let's not talk about it and move on, you know
0: yeah that that um it's interesting because i I just read a book uh, I can't even remember the name of the book, but I was listening to the audio uh version of it on a run the other day and it was talking about a white lady who had been captured in a raid. I believe it was the Comanche. Uh, Comanche tribe that rolled her up and she had lived on the reservation for a period of time and during this time her baby was killed at seven weeks old because they didn't know she was pregnant she had the baby they they brutally uh, killed the baby Um, after a meeting supposedly they had a meeting about it then they wound up killing the baby and then finally she got frustrated with her life and said you know what I'm just going to end this and I'm going to end it um uh, And let this be over with by letting them kill me, so it was like a suicide by you know her captors, sure, and so her the the person who was designated as her caretaker, she winded up getting into an argument and then a physical altercation, and she thought to herself, if she just fought this woman that would allow her captors to come rescue the woman that she was her caretaker. And she expected to get speared in the back or killed in the back. So she was beating this woman who had brutally abused her verbally and physically. And one up beating her up. But what she realized is the first time that she got in this altercation, the, the men came out and they gathered around her and they watched the fight. And then after the fight, they just walked away. And she was, she was in shock because she was like, wait a minute. that Not only did they not intervene and protect the caretaker... But they just observed and left, and then after that fight, the caretaker respected her and right. said, and said, and basically treated her like a sister after that event. Well, then the caretaker's mother um, said, because you fought and beat my daughter, I'm going to kill you. And they got into a physical altercation days later, so she wound up beating up the mother. They were tangled up in a fire. Uh, apparently, they were, this was around a fire. They were tangled into a fire. They both got burned. Um, That's a tough lady. They, yeah, <laughs> really tough. They wind up getting burned. They beat. He, she beats the mother, and same thing happened. They surrounded her, and then after that, the mother respected her. and Then the men who used to mess with her all the time, they stopped uh, engaging with her. They allowed her just to live her normal life, and there was no more abuse. And that was very interesting to me because, you know, I haven't seen specifically that kind of uh, thing happen in in my culture, which I grew up in Asian American culture. But it's similar, where you know you're tested. You have a warrior kind of, you know. My mom is a disciplinar- disciplinary, and she's beat the crap out of me as as growing up, and that was just part of the thing. But I know what discipline is. Mm-hmm. Like I'll never, I don't talk back. I don't. I call yes sir, yes ma'am. Um, it's very strict and rigid, but very different than my experience with my dad, who was not a disciplinary. He was just a a nice guy. Right? right? right. But it it's it's Disneyland interesting. Dad, maybe. Disneyland, dad. Disneyland <laughs> Dad. He he felt he would give me, he would apologize before he had to spank me because he had he just wanted to be a man of his word, right, but right. he just wouldn't hit me that hard. Yeah. Um do you see those kind of things that are kind of brought up into that, you know, some of these cultures being Comanche, Apache or that are warrior cultures? that are different than what you see with American culture, as we understand it?
1: Absolutely. And I think a big one, especially again, here in Northern Arizona is the matrilineal thing in the culture, right? Like the women are kind of seen as the more revered and regarded, right? And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's different mindsets around that, like, well, they carry life and, and for other reasons, right? But like, you know, way back in the day when people were super traditional in navajo way like when you married a girl you left your family and you went and lived with her and her family Mm. right and like when you as a as a navajo person when you identify yourself according to your clans and you identify your four primary clans right your mom's clan comes first that's the clan you were really born for right and then your dad's clan is second and then, you know, your grandparents' clans come in there too, right? Your grandfather's on your mom's side will come in, and then your grandmother's on your dad's side will come in, right? And so those are the clans you identify as, but it's always your mom's clan first, right? It's a mm-hmm. very matrilineal culture. And I, you know, I've even had friends like in particular, like I remember this one experience with a, a Hopi buddy of mine where I was at his house and, and we were actually playing music together and um he uh His wife was there, his mom was there and his aunt was there. So his mom's sister was there and his wife had her two sisters there. And like all these ladies were just like berating this poor guy like the whole time, just like verbally (laughs) abusing. And hey, come do this, come do this. And like, I'm like waiting to play like music to jam with this guy. And he's like, got to get all of his like honeydews out of the way first, right? And he comes in and he gets all done. I'm waiting like 45 minutes, right? But I'm watching this whole thing and and I'm, you know, pretty aware of like these cultural differences. So I'm just like kicking back and keeping my mouth shut, you know, like this is what it is and I need to wait. And he comes in he's like, dude, it is sometimes so hard to be a Hopi man in America. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I know you at your house, you don't get treated like this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty rough, dude. That (laughs) That is. a so the women hard. run things more yeah. in those, in yeah. those cultures.
0: Mm-hmm. What kind of, you know, I grew up in, I didn't grow up exclusively there, but I lived in North Carolina for a period of time where many of my friends were Lumbee Indian. Hmm. And that culture, there's a, one, alcoholism, especially in the North Carolina part of it, is rampant in yeah. that culture. All the guys, all the buddies that I grew up with who were Indians grew up and, abusive house households as well as having alcohol tear those households apart. Um, very warrior mindset and driven in, in their attributes yeah. character wise. Uh, they would never, st- they would never stand down. I mean, these are some of the toughest dudes. I played football with them, but also fought them and grew up with them in that kind of culture. And I was always amazed by their resiliency. Um, as I, I hear it a lot in podcasts I listen to and what I read about growing up as a child, as in a Native American and a lot of Native American cultures being that tough, and then that having an impact into adulthood, obviously, because that's just going to transcend. Is it more a problem there versus American culture or white America? Um, and, and how do you deal with that in therapy? Like, what's the, what's the tactic? in the approach and and therapy and working through that problem set.
1: So, I mean, yeah, I think it is like vastly more present in those communities than it is in like, you know, quote unquote white America. Sure. There are, you know, dysfunctional alcoholic and abusive families in white America as well, for Mm -hmm. sure. There's no question, but what you're really talking about is the effect of intergenerational trauma on communities. Right. I mean, the Jews saw the same thing after the Holocaust, right? There's massive physical abuse, sexual abuse, substance abuse, and all that stuff like that. I mean, it's an incredibly traumatic experience that was brought on these communities, right? And on top of that, like, I think a lot of times we like to think of this stuff like, well, that was in the past, right? Like, all the oppression happened in the past, but the power structures that set up that oppression still exist today. I mean, reservations are economically oppressed, right? There really aren't. Like you talk about driving through reservation communion, like, oh, like there's a McDonald's and a gas station. There aren't a ton of stores, right? And and there are a lot of reasons for that. And um, we don't have to go into that necessarily, but in a lot of ways that has been intentional, right? I mean, it's a very difficult thing that the United States deals with having sovereign Indian nations within their own borders and i think it's a political nightmare for some people and some people like we just wish this problem would go away right like it's this problem having different people in america yeah we see ourselves like oh we celebrate diversity and you know this melting pot or whatever that we're here before we showed up right but we're here before we showed up as long as you you know drink coca-cola and buy fords and whatever you know like then we'll be cool with you but you've got to go along with our thing and um So, I mean, when you have, like, this generation upon generation of specifically targeting a person's culture and trying to dismantle that, right, and destroy their identity Mm -hmm. and leave them lost, right, and without purpose, and now it's very difficult for them to even get jobs and feel like, oh, yeah, I'm of value to my family and stuff like that, it creates a tremendous amount of despair. Not only that, you destroyed family structure by sending generations of Native Americans off to these dormitory schools where they were punished severely often just because they were native, but especially if they were exhibiting things related to their culture and stuff like that. And they weren't raised by their parents anymore. They were raised by mean dorm staff, right, that treated them super poorly. So how did they learn how to parent, right? Like this very mean kind of militant tight parenting style, right? And all of that stuff just starts to stack and stack and stack and have an effect. And it gets passed down generation upon generation upon generation. And so yeah, you see massive amounts of substance abuse that's really people trying to mask and run away from the despair a lot of times that they feel in not having opportunities and not having a strong identity anymore. Yeah. As an Indian man, regardless of what your actual tribal affiliation is.
0: It seems like very socioeconomic because absolutely. I mean, there's, when I lived in Northern California in Amador County, there's an Indian population there. And I, I don't remember the uh, Indian tribe that's there in those, that area, but they're known to be very rich in, mm-hmm. in resources. They have, it, it's casinos. Not, yeah, yeah. and the mm-hmm. casinos aren't just like some janky casino. <laughs> These are beautiful areas and and this is this particular place is in Jackson, California. And all their houses are around the casino. they They drive around in nice vehicles. they have nice schools their kids go to, and it just seems super squared away. And you take that on the in the contrast the Navajo, where they live in the middle of a desert field with no agriculture, with no opportunity, and the disparity is completely different and and very aggressive. And you imagine growing up there, and every time I go to a gas station there, I'm like, man, everybody's, most of the people that I see are obese, Uh, they have health issues, um, and there is no, it's not like there's a whole food setting up there. It's not, you know, they're eating garbage food, What? what's the change what's the what's the way in which you therapeutically kind of navigate that when you don't have an out besides them finding the out within themselves right. or maybe displacing themselves from the situation they're in
1: well i mean you start by uh, it's a little bit similar to what we were talking about like with your experience in the military like and this is where that cultural background and knowledge is so important right is i I can normalize that despair for them. Like, hey, I get why you're despairing. I get why you yeah. feel like your life sucks so bad. Cause it kind of does. Yeah. You know? Like, it really kind of does. And And you've had a hard go of it. And there's a reason you're where you're at, right? And the reason is not necessarily just you. Mm. Certainly, like, you know, we all have choice and agency and stuff like that. And, you know, and that's really where you know, you try and help people discover their power in their own lives. And that's where, you know, therapy really starts to have the effect and the influence. But you can't start with just saying, hey, you have power, go out and do different things and make different choices. You have to help them, you know, feel that empathy and identity of what the real problem is that they're dealing with and realize that, oh, okay. I think a lot of times people come to therapy and they're like, there's something wrong with me. Right. But then when you really hear the circumstances around a person's life, sometimes it's like um, you are literally having a normal reaction yeah. to a very abnormal set of circumstances. Yeah. Like, this is not how people are supposed to grow up. This is not how life is supposed to be. Like, to even use that word sometimes, because it's a sticky word, st- supposed to be, but mm-hmm. you know, this idealistic stuff. But I think that, you know, really helping that person know and understand that, like, hey, yeah, there's a reason you're here. We, we get it and we understand it's not all your fault. And what are we going to do now to try and mitigate the effects of all this stuff and move forward?
0: What is the moving forward in that circumstance? Cause I'd imagine if you're, man, I, I, it, it's crazy. Cause I, I, for some reason I, I've been thinking about this a lot and been reading about it a lot and even driving through the uh, reservation recently, uh, it's always on my mind what what do you do when you're in that circumstance and y- you don't have much in resources, do you encourage them to leave, displace themselves to make other choices to potentially evolve?
1: So I'm, I'm a very client directed therapist, right? I am not the type of therapist that like, you know, kind of to use the analogy like versus a very directive or, you know, quote unquote expert therapist is, you know, let's say a client comes to you and they're like, Hey, I want to get to Seattle. And you're like, Going to get you to San Diego, and I promise you're going to like it a lot better. You know, like my approach is oh, you want to go to Seattle? Okay, here's how we get to Seattle. So it's not really my job to decide what is going to pull them out of it, but it is my job to set up the environment to help them explore what that is for them. Right. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's really finding purpose. Right. And so, um, whether that's maybe reclaiming some cultural identity and they get maybe into their spirituality, right? And they go back to ceremony and they participate in those things and find purpose and identity and a place in the community with that. Or do they get a job or do they go back to school or whatever? I mean, that's really for them to decide. But yeah, I mean, they, they've got to do something to get some momentum in their life and feel like they're in control again.
0: Well, I like that. That's, so you're acting like a, a conduit to their own right. maybe objectives in their own right. life. And, and giving them a space to explore
1: that and also sometimes encouraging and confronting, because a lot of times we have these ideas like, I could never do that. And, and like, I remember thinking, like, because, you know, I'm, I'm like a first generation college guy. Like, at one point I did want to be a doctor. I could never do that. Like, medical school's for geniuses. Mm-hmm. I've met a lot of doctors in my life at this point. Yeah. They're not all geniuses. No, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I could have gone to medical school, yeah. <laughs> I could do that. Why did I think I couldn't do that? You know, and sometimes helping people, you know, again, see things more accurately in their lives and and assessing their own abilities more accurately and, and building some esteem to know that they can do some of these things and, you know, help them explore different opportunities that they may not consider.
0: How does spirituality play into this? Because in a subculture with... I don't know peyote. I had special operations buddies that that carried peyote around their neck, mm. and they grew up, you know, doing ayahuasca ceremonies and stuff like that, and mm. very spiritual and connected to the world. Right? Um, how does that play a role in therapy when it comes to you know helping them understand their path?
1: Again, I think it's like being malleable as a therapist. Like I like to say, as a therapist, I ride shotgun. You know, I mean, you're driving, I'll go wherever we need to go for you. And, 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 you know, and I think being able to respect all belief systems and even respecting people that have a lack of a belief system or spirituality, right? Like, oh, I'm an atheist. I've, I've worked with native atheists, hundred <laughs> percent. Like no. that's, that's a thing. So again, like it's different for different people, but you know, being able to respect and value that like, okay, I support that. Like if you, Want to get back into your spirituality as a Native person, then yeah, go do that. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, like, you worked with guys in special operations. It's always been really shocking to me that Native Americans are the most overrepresented ethnic group in the United States military. Mm. That blows my mind. Like, per capita, more natives serve in the military than any other ethnic group. Wow. Mm. Like, and you and, and also have to understand the scale, because like, some people will be like, "That's weird. There aren't that many natives in the military, right?" But if you look at like the last census, the Native American uh, population in the United States was one point seven percent of the total population, and I'm sure that's a little bit underrepresented by census numbers, but it's a very, it's like two percent of American people are native american which is yeah. kind of crazy if you think about because this is america yeah and they're native americans and only two percent of americans are native american but a huge percentage of those native americans are going and serving in the military of a country that has historically enacted a genocide both literal and cultural on them and continues to oppress them to this day and they're still treated Agreements that aren't being honored by the United States government with many Native American communities. I see that legislation all the time mm-hmm.
0: being, uh, you know, confronted and then saying, hey, "Hey, we, you owe us this," and the government conceding and saying, "Okay, sorry," and paying mm-hmm. fines and everything. Yeah. I just read a whole story on this. Yeah. Um, what is the what is the perception of uh, Native Americans that you've worked with and their ideas of American? you know, politics, ideology, do they, is, is they creating a line in the sand and they're just like, we don't want to get involved in that. And they have their opinion.
1: I, yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's all over the map. I mean, there are people that like, I don't even like to think about it because it's so depressing. Mm. And there are people that are like, it's too complex for me to even want to understand it. And there are people that are like, you know, yeah, I get it. I understand it, but I'm trying to move forward with my life. And then you have people that are really kind of activist and like, yeah, this is not cool and I want to do things about this in my life and I want to go back and help my community and I might want to, you know, help maybe one day influence law and do legislation and whatever else. And so it's really all over the map. But I mean, again, Native Americans come up in the same kind of school system that we all came up on, right? Just because you're a Native American, I mean, there are conversations I've had with Native people like regularly where they're like, "I did not know that about the history of how Native Americans were treated," you know, and it's like, "Yeah, well, that's legit. It was really rough. <laughs> it's still not great."
0: Yeah. You know? How do they receive you as therapist in the blind? Like, if a guy shows up and he doesn't sure. know expect know what to expect from a therapist, and you show up, how do- how does that go?
1: Right. So, I mean. It's funny because when I went to work for NACA seven years ago, I I was like, ooh, I I don't know how this will always go, right? Um, And I think that, and this kind of will dovetail into something again in a second, but um, I thought like, oh, a person's coming to literally an urban Indian center, they might expect to be treated by a Native clinician and therapist and, and part of the reason they're not is because there aren't as many of them because their educational opportunities aren't the same and so that's a big issue there but the other thing is is i've had a lot of native people be like "No, nah, actually i prefer that you're white right as long as you express respect and understanding and a desire to be fluid and go where they want to go it's funny. I, a lot of times, what's reflected to me is Native American people will say things like, "Well, we're really gossipy," and I'm like, and so they see, see working with a an Anglo or a white or a non-native therapist is like their privacy will be more protected because oh, if I work with a native therapist, what if they are clan related oh. to me or they know somebody I know yeah, and they're going to they're going to talk about me and it's going to get out in the community and really that privacy component is the huge foundation of therapy a lot of people just aren't going to want to do this really deep personal work if they were worried it's going to get out somewhere right yeah and so it's it's super important to maintain the integrity of that privacy but and again this is kind of like normalizing something for people sometimes i'm like you have no idea how many native people say that to me it's not because you're native. That's not like a native trait. It's just you guys come from small towns.
0: Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> that exists in every small town in America. Everybody in a small
1: town is gossipy. Like yeah. that's just a you know complete effect of being in those small communities. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of times people are like, I prefer working with a white therapist because I know my information will be kept private. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, I'm not... I'm not there to do a ceremony for them. I'm there to provide a behavioral health service. And so I don't have to be native to provide a behavioral health service, right? If they want a ceremony, they should go to a medicine man or a tothly or however they say it in their own particular tribe and get that from them. That's not my role. Like there's a guy for that and I'm not that guy. I'm the therapist. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you want to do the spirituality thing, go do that. You're here to do behavioral health. I'm here to do that for you. And, and I think a lot of people are—they can really easily see that distinction. That's not that complex.
0: Do you, is there a combination in therapy of uh, the pharmaceutical, you know, combination of mm-hmm. you know psychs, uh, psych drugs with with therapy? I've heard like the biggest success rates are the ones that combine some kind of protocol for uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how to define it—drug therapy or whatever. Sure. Yeah. And on top of that with the actual therapy sessions
1: right so i mean that's a really good point there are a lot of people that are really kind of drug averse right there are a lot of people and even i've had a lot of clients over the years that are really into recreational drugs but they absolutely are not interested in like medication for their behavioral health disorders (laughs) right (laughs) it's like well, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'll do drugs. I'm not doing those drugs. I'll do all natural drugs. <laughs> yeah.
0: Trazodone, like the VA sure. prescribed Trazodone, mm-hmm. I felt like a zombie. Sure. They, they pre- prescribed it for me for sleep because right. that was what I wanted it for. Yeah. But it- That's what it, it's probably best for. Yeah. And when they gave me the label, it literally said for depression. Yeah. Or anxiety. It's like I think. a
1: Gen 1 antidepressant. Yeah. Yeah. It said
0: I, for depression and anxiety. And yeah. so I looked at it, it, was like, wait a minute, I said I wanted this for sleep. And then so it said that, and I was taking it for sleep. Mm-hmm. But when I woke up in the morning, I felt like a zombie all day long. And I realized that I, a lot of things that I didn't – that I necessarily cared about during the day that would cause me anxiety, I really didn't care about it. But I didn't care about a lot of things <laughs> because I was like a zombie. <laughs> right, like I, I was right. numb I and out. I was yeah. dead to the world. Sure. And and so I've I've heard there's maybe scales or protocols for scales of that with therapy.
1: Yeah. So, I mean – you're, you're going to get the world, according to Aaron Rasband, for a moment now. So take with as many pounds of salt as is necessary. But like, I, I have been doing this for over a decade now, and uh, solidly over a decade. And I've seen the results with medication all over the map, all over the map. You know, oh, okay, I'm going to take a, a medication for my behavioral health condition. And it, it helps. I'm going to take a medication, it helps a little bit. I'm going to take a medication, it seems to do nothing. I'm going to take a medication and it's harmful, right? Like the side effect, like sometimes they have what are called paradoxical side effects. You take an antidepressant and now you feel suicidal, whereas you didn't before, right? And that's particularly common with adolescents right now with SSRIs. And so, you know, for me, I'm totally open to like whatever, like, hey, if you want to try medication by all means, like, you're welcome to try medication in concert with therapy. But, and and this is where I'll piss off psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners in the pharmaceutical industry. But a lot of times they're kind of selling that treatment as like a long-term treatment. And it's not really meant to be. It's not really been studied that way. You're not meant to take an antidepressant for the rest of your life. You're not meant to take anxiety drugs, anti-anxiety drugs for the rest of your life. Or whatever. There are very few behavioral health conditions where you are long-term going to need medication, and those are things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So you're taking antipsychotics or mood stabilizers, right? Other than that, that medication, and this is where I'll probably piss people off, and I don't mean it to be pissing people off. I just want to call it what it is. medical treatment of behavioral health issues is symptom reduction it's not necessarily totally treatment right Mm -hmm. it's an adjunct treatment if you're going to take medication while you do therapy that's a really great idea if you want to do therapy without medication that should be fine if you want to do medication without doing therapy i wouldn't recommend that Mm -hmm. because the medication it might change how you feel right let's say you're super depressed right there are a lot of cognitions that are going to attend being super depressed. I suck. Nobody loves me. I'll never be good at anything, all this stuff, type of stuff. Now I take an antidepressant and I feel less horrible about sucking and being unlovable mm-hmm. and I'm never going to amount to anything. But there's nothing that medication will ever do to change the cognitions behind those feelings, uh. right? That's what therapy is for, right? And so the idea is like... Yeah, in in an ideal world, if medication is helpful for you, you would take medication, go to therapy. And then as you do the work in therapy and you start learning how to manage this stuff yourself in a healthy way, you start to titrate off the medication and go down on it. And eventually you don't need the medication and eventually you don't need the therapy either because we've taught you how to do therapy for yourself. Yeah. Right, that's the ideal.
0: I could see where you just messed up the pharmaceutical industry's business plan because yeah.
1: <laughs> someone might kill me tomorrow. I don't yeah,
0: know. <laughs> you never know. I, yeah, and I could be uh, wrong too. Like you know, yeah. that's
1: what I'm saying. Take as many pounds of salt, but that's what I've seen clinically in over a decade of clinical work. That yeah, that that medication is sometimes very helpful, and for those that it is, I would never take it away. But again, it's that's not the treatment. That is can be a very helpful adjunct to treatment. But again, also, sometimes you're rolling the dice because there are some potential side effects there. These are synthetic medications we're putting in our bodies.
0: Yeah, chemicals that, you know, it's like the Band-Aid on a hatchet wound, you know? It's just, it's not addressing the sole source of the the actual problem, which that's what therapy's for. Right. Outside of therapy, is there anything else that that is as conclusive as therapy and treatment?
1: Exercise. Yeah, I was gonna say exercise is a you big know, one.
0: One of my favorite, um, man, I'm, 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 in, I'm getting into uh, one. I love YouTube. That's why we did, started doing this YouTube channel mm. stuff because it's a, it's becoming for uh, even in my own patterns of life an educational resource outside of documentaries on like on Netflix because I've watched them all. So <laughs> once you've saturated and done everything, it's like you start turning to YouTube. And there's this great video, and I'll probably put the link up in notes, but there's this great video that Patagonia did. It's a mini-documentary on a Navajo Indian who was going through issues. Uh, He was in depression, anxiety, and I think they talked to his mother during the uh, documentary, Mm -hmm. having all these issues. And he starts trail running on the res. And then he starts doing long. In fact, it's part of the... He's like ultra runner. He's an ultra runner. And part, it's... it's, uh, crazy but part of the inspiration for me to even get into like today I got a 45 minute run this weekend I have a 6 hour run which is amazing but <sighs> I, yeah I know I'm getting ready for this this 50k and I saw this and it changed his life because for the first time he was able to take all those you know all that noise that white noise in his head and was able to turn it down a notch when he was when he was running and he forgot yeah. about his problems and it kind of balanced his chemicals and right yeah
1: well yeah and I think I mean that is because we know that there is a release of dopamine and serotonin and these really beneficial neurotransmitters that help us feel okay and feel better about being in the world and being alive as a human being right and that's what a lot of times these um, pharmaceutical drugs are trying to kind of synthesize right. Oh. Or, or sometimes they're synthesizing things in a way that are trying to basically confuse the system to allow your neurotransmitters to be more effective, the ones that are organic. But, you know, when you're getting literal actual release of beneficial neurotransmitters that are these organic endogenous things that our brains produce, that's really beneficial for us in our system. And, and so, yeah, it's not there is nothing about like, oh, the meditative part of running or whatever necessarily. Sure, I think that's probably good and that's not an issue, but man, getting that bump of serotonin and and dopamine when we're out there running and exercising like that, there are many studies. It's been replicated multiple times showing that exercise can be as effective or more effective than medication in the treatment of behavioral health disorders.
0: I love that. And I wish... I don't know how to do it. I've I've asked myself the question, and because uh, you know, part of our business plan is always to give back to whether it's charities and nonprofits or just helping people in general. And I'm always trying to figure out a way, man, to help out the Native Americans in our own backyard because it is part of the culture, especially in Flagstaff. You're yeah. on the reservation border, absolutely, and so, yeah. um, you know, whether that was like. Doing the well, I was talking. I think I was talking to you offline about it, about the overlanding stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, had an idea of doing overland trips for people who want to overland in environments they haven't overlanded before, which is the res because you don't have access to people typically don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. And then have little stops, maybe even camp stops where you learn about the history, and then put that on YouTube, put that on podcast for, for people to understand the culture. I mean, I'd like to, even after this, talk about maybe getting somebody from the reservation to come and talk because that kind of education and understanding, um, is just healthy for everybody. You can't go wrong with that kind of therapy. Yeah. Do you, have you found, uh, have you found your purpose in this? Is this what drives you to wake up every morning or is there some other objective outside of that particular therapy you're offering that you want to encompass into something else?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, You know, I I think I mentioned at some point that I've like worked basically continuously since I was seven. I've had a lot of jobs in my life. Um, I don't really see this as a job, right? I see this as like a calling. Like, I, I don't think you do this if it's just a job. If you do you're probably not going to do it for that long. You're probably going to get burned out because it is, it's a tough job. You're dealing with the hardest things that people will ever deal with and talk about in their lives. And, and there are even therapists that become, you know, what we call secondary trauma by doing the work that we do. And they become traumatized by just taking on so much trauma. I mean, you, you think of it like, well, that didn't actually happen to you, but you're like literally hearing it hours and hours and hours every week of your life. It's that can be a little tough. For whatever reason, I seem pretty durable against that effect. But um yeah, I absolutely love what I do. Like, I, I don't ever wake up and, and be like, oh, I don't want to go to work today. Sometimes it's like, I don't want to go to work for this many hours today. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. totally legit. But I love what I do. I love working with clients. Um, the Um The only other thing is sometimes, you know, being a musician and stuff like that, I would say that I'm in like my uh second level dream career like if i could it'd be any i'd be a musician that would be that's my first love like i'd love 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 music and playing guitar and writing songs but um you know sometimes music can have a very powerful and beneficial effect in people's treatment and stuff too and i'll, I'll use musical components and pieces sometimes when i teach people relaxation breathing or And I've even, you know, when I was in a residential program, I wrote an entire group curriculum for basically, and I tailored it to adolescents, but kind of teaching kids how to look at music more critically, to choose music that has emotional components in it that are actually of value and are very humanizing, and then to use that music sometimes to help them get through difficult things, right? I mean, I think we've all had that experience where like, we're going through a hard time and we feel like man, like nobody in the world feels like me and nobody understands me and I'm all alone. And then we hear a song and it's like, they wrote that song for me. Mm. Like, how did they know? And and what an incredibly humanizing and normalizing experience that mm. is to be like, wow, there is another person out there that understands me. And sometimes to be in a place where like, yeah, I'm kind of sad and I've been kind of avoiding these feelings, but to be able to sit down and be like, you know what? I might listen to a few sad songs right now and be present with my feelings and around, allow the release of that emotion hmm. out of these finite containers that we have within us of all the emotion that we carry in our lives like it's a very healthy outlet for stuff like that.
0: That's interesting. I never thought about that. I've you know, I've I've heard songs that in 3 minutes could evoke um more emotion than, you know, a 2-hour movie uh yeah. Three-hour therapy session. Absolutely. It's just, just have you have you have you thought about starting uh, a program, nonprofit, or something that involves music with therapy?
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually I work at a not-for-profit, like Native Americans mm-hmm. for Community Action, is a not-for-profit Urban Indian Center. There's about roughly 38 of these, I think, across the nation, and it's interesting because we're we fill a, a specific niche that. Um, is not able to be filled by, like, the Indian Health Service, right? Again, these are these are treated rights that the government promised to the Native Americans in exchange for typically ancestral lands, right? You give up our lands, let us move you over here, and we promise to give you health care and education, right? And sometimes that health care was smallpox blankets, and sometimes it was yeah. boarding schools where we're going to destroy your culture. But um, that was kind of the trade, like the deal with the devil, so to speak. And so... Um, I actually was able to write a grant a few years ago. I'm in the last year of that grant cycle. Uh, I got on Uncle Sugar's, you know, one huge green rainbow and wrote a grant to fund the work that I do under what is called a methamphetamine and suicide prevention initiative program. Basically, like that whole grant cycle and, and the purpose of that grant was put out to kind of raise awareness of the damage of substance abuse and suicide. Um, And so most of the grants out there that are doing that work, they're doing a lot of community outreach and education, like raising awareness of suicide and the problems of methamphetamine and other dangerous drugs. And that can include heroin, fentanyl, whatever, even alcohol. But um, for me, I'm like, I'm pretty sure most people are aware of these problems. <laughs> I just am. Yeah, and yeah. so I want to take this money and actually do something with it, right? And this is actually even the second cycle of this grant. So there was a first initial six-year cycle of it, and, and I really picked up into the second cycle of this. And I'm like, why are we going to do education about this for 12 years? Let's turn this into some actual traction, <laughs> yeah. right? It just seems like an interesting use of money to me. But So I really wrote my grant as a clinical service delivery to like, you know, actually work with these issues that eventually do lead to things like suicide and substance abuse and stuff like that. And so in that I I did set aside, you know, some place to kind of take my little music group and try and work with adolescents and stuff with that. And um one of the problems I had with it is I, I tried to work in like a a a native dormitory, yeah. right? And The problem was I, I went to them. Hey, I want to do this. And they were like, Oh, that sounds great. That'd be amazing. Come, come do it, please. And so I I started doing it, but the place was just so poorly organized that I'd literally show up week after week after week. And they're like, Oh, we scheduled something else. And the kids aren't even at the dorm today. And, and I just like ran me to the ground. So I'm trying to, to Scratch my head and figure out where else I can do this. I might try and move into doing this in like a an alternative high school type setting, mm. where you know I know the kids are going to be there and see if there's any way I could do it there and reach in particular kids that really need you know interventions and and options for interventions that they may not receive otherwise. Yeah. A lot of times, kids in alternative schools and stuff are there because maybe they don't have great parenting and so they're not getting some of these options at home.
0: Yep. So. Your your wife is is into uh, philanthropy as well and helping people and giving back and she does some work with the homeless population yeah. and flag stuff as well. Is this something that you guys have decided as a family, um, or is this something that you have been tied to separate as individuals? Or is it, you yeah. know, because it seems like you guys yeah. are very giving and very yeah, that's that you're very empathetic to these kind of circumstances. Is that something culturally that you guys are are doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think so. It's not by plan, really. I mean, the the therapy thing. I mean, I my wife didn't know that I was even considering being a therapist necessarily when we got married. Um, that was something that came later because again, I was working construction at the time and considering joining the military and whatever. And, and I think that, and that was honestly a huge shift and change in our relationship, because when you become a therapist, it kind of changes you as a person yeah. quite a bit. Over time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's an incremental thing that you may not notice, but your family's going to notice. I mean, my kids, a lot of times will say things like, turn it off, dad, stop being a therapist right now. And I'll, I'll be like,
0: uh, Oh, am I doing that? <laughs>
1: there's not a switch for this anymore. Yeah, This is just who I am. This is me now. (laughs) This is me. I'm I'm just a different person now. And and like, so I think that, um, you know, she had to navigate through her husband becoming a different person. But I think fortunately we, we did just kind of find each other in this universe of like, yeah, just like-minded and like-hearted people. And, you know, when she started doing the work that she did with homeless people, I, it wasn't even necessarily some huge design. I think she was just drawn to it, just like I was drawn to what I was drawn to. And and the joke now is like, you know, we both obviously want to be super rich because we both work for not-for-profits. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> it's like, We're just here to help people. you like, should have been <laughs> bankers or something. But, like, yeah, it's. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, fortunately we found each other and yeah, she's way more incredible than I am and does so much to, you know, work to help homeless people all over northern Arizona and even yeah. does a lot of work at the state level.
0: Yeah, you got, you, you, both of you guys are great people. Um, in, this, in this world of coronavirus now, um, <laughs> are you guys doing anything different in, in your household for preparation? Or are you guys riding it out and just waiting for the circumstances to unfold?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard because, you know, I think, you know, I, I I was an Eagle Scout. You know, I grew up in that be prepared type mindset yeah. and stuff. So, you know, definitely I think it's a good idea to stock your shelf with some staples. Yeah. You know, and and that's something that we've done, but we're we're not trying to get into like the the paranoia around it. I, I think sometimes, you know, the way society reacts to some of these things is we start creating problems that are even worse than the problem we trying itself. to prepare for, right? Absolutely. People yeah. start running supermarkets dry of stuff and then yep. people get all opportunistic and now it's like, oh, if you want to buy a a mask on Amazon, it's like 30 bucks a mask or something insane. like that. And people are just like, uh, ching I'm gonna...
0: I know. There's yeah. people who bought masks to sell masks. Uh, yeah. I'm like, can you imagine okay. if we started selling masks yeah. and upping the price? Like, hey, yeah. we just, by, by chance, we have masks sitting Yeah, like,
1: like you're a house flipper or something. Yeah. I'm gonna flip these masks, bro. It's just insane. <laughs> make 400% A lot of people are doing yeah. that. We're yeah. trying
0: to... Yeah, at, at my house, we're just... We've basically just bumped up the numbers of stuff that we typically have on yeah. the shows anyways, as yeah. a consideration. And then yeah. we've seen the mask thing, like some guys like, Hey, can you help me? I, I sell uh NBC mask and I was interested if you want to do something. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that, man. <laughs> I, number one, if it gets
1: that bad, don't go outside.
0: Yeah, stay <laughs> in your home. Stay in your number house, one, yeah. but I'm not going to be interacting with people wearing a pro mask, yeah, right? And right. and and even the surgical mask, which in this particular situation really isn't that effective, right? It's just like why would you yeah. go down that road? I
1: mean, if you're going to go that route, just go like balls out and get an ET suit, you know, yeah. like the whole bio. I you might like, as well so, yeah. if you're going to and do just that. Roll through the world like that. Yeah, it, there's
0: part, there's yeah. part of me now with this whole thing where I'm like, you know, because they're they're. Eighty percent of the people who get it are fine, mm-hmm. and then they have immunity. It's like right. that get out of jail free card forever. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, man, right. maybe I need to get this in me because it's like a, <laughs> right. it's acting as a vaccine yeah. because it's the immunity that you get with all the benefit of getting the the virus and getting through it. Yeah. And I'm like, can
1: I get a mildly corona sick yeah. person to like lick my hand?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if if the time to get sick is now, let's just get sick now, so <laughs> right. I don't have to worry about it down the road. Right. Um, are you guys? Because you guys trained together when you guys came here with mm-hmm. us. Is it something that you've instilled in your children growing up to have a more prepared mindset?
1: Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and maybe sometimes to their detriment, they're like, come on, Dad. Like, do we really have to <laughs> do this? Are we going to really go out and shoot again? Are we going to do a fire <laughs> drill? Are we going to do this stuff? Like, why do we have to put this in the car? You know, yeah, like,
0: yeah. you know. Our age, we love that kind of stuff. Yeah. When you grow up, I mean, it's the technology oh my world gosh, we dude. live in. If I have a Swiss yeah.
1: Army knife that I got when I was like 13 years old, and I still have it to oh, this yeah, day. Oh, yeah, I do too. When I, I have went through the Boy Scouts and all this, I like, I love that stuff. And, you know, I like, we've done things where we've gone out. I remember when, like, Bear Grylls mm-hmm. program came on TV. My sons were like, oh, that's so cool. And I'm like, we can do that. Let's go out and do this. So we go out and literally... Yeah. Build a shelter and don't take a tent or a sleeping bag and build a fire. That's awesome. And kid's like, oh, this is amazing. And maybe much to my wife's chagrin, I'm sure this is my influence, but my oldest son now is like, he's like, I want to get an option 40 contract and go into the military. And he's starting to prep and train for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Let us know. Oh, absolutely. I'm like, Gabe, we're going to put you through Mike's soft soft prep course. And he's like, okay.
0: That's the most satisfying course that we run. It's the we cool. don't. It's not even a good business decision because we don't make a lot of money. It's sure. just not even. It's just. It's almost like we, we've actually considered and we might do it not this year because we only have one more, but the following year just doing it for free because, mm-hmm. um, we can get more numbers. If, yeah. I mean, we could if we did it for free, we'd get like fifty people showing up. Probably. And yeah. it's such like when we see you could run a lot of group stuff. You could run the way. group stuff. Yeah. I had a guy this last class. He, We had three or four guys come from Colorado, mm-hmm. from De- the Denver uh, metro area. And one wow. of the guys who showed up, he was displaced from Texas. He was kind of a thuggish kind of guy, just mm. hardcore, bad upbringing, r- ran around the wrong crowds, got into some legal trouble, went to Colorado to start over. And then he comes here, and you could see it on his face. I mean, he shows up with a buck knife on his hip. He's got cowboy boots on. And he's kind of arrogant, and he's got this attitude about him. But I look at him, and I'm like, man, he, you know, he, physically, I don't know how, how well he's going to do. And as we start doing the physical events, he, it starts breaking him down. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this, because the idea isn't to just break people down because, one, we don't have the time. And, two, it, in this period of time that we do have, we want to concentrate on breaking them down mildly to get exposure but then educating them on best practices, so yeah. when they actually are getting broken down, they understand what to do,
1: like how to take care of their feet. And yeah, just basic stuff and stuff, basic that stuff that you learn when you're like out in the woods. Yeah, and like yeah, abusing yourself. Stuff
0: that we took for granted because yeah. we already knew it because we learned the hard way. Yeah, these kids yeah. don't learn it at all, and right. then so he. By the how many it,
1: kids have walked long enough to actually get like? Exactly. quarter size blisters peel off their heels, we, you know. We made
0: these guys do a six-mile loop with, um, and I'm giving this away if you, you know, this is part of the program, but we do a uh, uh, 45 pounds dry, so with water, 50 pounds, and then a six-mile ruck. And by the end of this, he was so broken down. By the end of the course, he's like, I showed up here, and my ego made me feel like, uh I was better than all these guys because I thought I was better than all these guys. But then when we physically started getting broken down, I realized I was just compensating for what I wasn't good at, right? So his ego was taking over because physically he didn't have the capability. So he made up for it with his ego. But then when he realized that it was kind of like this eye-opening experience for him and he said, I've never realized that I had so many deficiencies in the first place. And so... In, in a 48-hour period of time, just that experience allows – and if I had that opportunity before going to ranger school, before going to the infantry or even SF, I would have took that opportunity. Uh, I wanted to be in Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and an uh, Eagle Scout. My dad couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it now, I'm like – I don't even think you had to pay for that stuff. Like most of the stuff was free. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like... If my
1: parents had to pay for scouts, I probably wouldn't have been in yeah, scouts. And,
0: th- and then I'm, I'm like going back and maybe it was just laziness. And I'm like, yeah. man, maybe... I mean, the
1: uniforms, yeah. they don't make them cheap. Yeah, that's, that sucks. But you can that, yeah. get them secondhand. And stuff.
0: There, was part, there was part of the things where it, a lot of it was excuses. And yeah. Yeah. now growing up, it's like I want my kids to be immersed in that kind of environment, mm-hmm. especially because the alternative of... Being so complacent because you're so immersed and addicted to the technology, right? That's the scariest thing for me.
1: Well, yeah, and, and I think our world just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, oh, it's yeah. a great big world, but now we're all intertwined. Like, yeah. what happens in China now is going to affect like Flagstaff. Isn't that <laughs> crazy? <laughs> it's like crazy.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's. I think the same way. I always talk about the phone as like of you know the virtual world that we live in uh and and everything else is just it's almost like a reverse now yeah because we used to look at our cell phones very strangely and oddly like oh this is really cool weird yeah that we could tap we could text somebody or call somebody yeah now we live in it permanently mm-hmm. as an alternate reality <laughs> yes, totally. um and so our normal reality are you seeing any of that in therapy like
1: yeah for sure yeah, yeah i mean especially with adolescents. i mean you know, I'm an older guy. I didn't grow up with cell phones. I was born in 75. And, you know, like, I didn't have my first cell phone until I was probably like 32 or 33 years old, (laughs) you know, and I actually didn't even want one. Uh I remember being like, uh, that's just one extra way for somebody to bother me. Yeah, Like, they'll just call me on it. I have an office phone. I have a house phone. I don't want another phone. (laughs) But they weren't as capable back then either. But now, you know, with all the apps and internet and google yeah. navigation and all that stuff with your phone i mean they're very powerful devices but then also people become very very dependent on them for everything yeah. you know uh, i'm depending on them to be able to find my way around town i'm dependent on them to be able to find a restaurant i'm dependent on them to have friends you know what i mean yeah. and it's like all this stuff that kind of becomes synthesized where Maybe the hard skills or like the more tangible, like real experience stuff is getting really kind of lost to a degree. Mm -hmm. And it also just opens you up to a lot of abuse sometimes. I mean, you know, when I was a teenager, there weren't cell phones. And so you would never walk up to a girl and be like, hey, um, can you send me nude pics? Yeah. Because she would slap you in the face like she should.
0: Yeah, And yeah. you would be
1: like, that was a really bad experience. I'm not going to do that again. Like, yeah. I looked like a real weird pervert.
0: Yeah. Now you can copy and paste that, that same <laughs> statement and then send it to, <laughs> to a thousand. Every girl you know. Yeah.
1: Right? Or don't know. Yeah. You just found them somehow because you're a cyber stalker. And like... Now, like, you can hide behind the, the perceived anonymity of that device, and, mm. and now kids are doing things that they would never really do in in real life or IRL, as the kids say, right? And yeah. it's, it's really having a strange effect on society sometimes, and, you know, there are a lot of good that comes with them. There's a lot of bad that comes with them, too. You know, I think it would be really good for us as human beings to learn some sort of balance with these things that are... Are very powerful and can be used for our good, and also very easily can be used for our detriment. Right? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think too. Like, how many times is stuff like that cause problems in the military? Like, oh yeah. You know, oh, people in China can track the movements of units because yeah. of their phones.
0: TikTok and, is this. You know, they just determined it was a. It's a collection device for information and intelligence for, for the Strava. China. Yeah. Strava
1: was tracking the movements of like elite operators as they were doing their workouts and people were like, Oh, that information's public, you know. Crazy. These guys are on their training runs and stuff. And yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think like everything, like, you know, a good bit of healthy caution is really good. Yeah. You know, to step back and say, Hey, you know, how do I evaluate? How is this going to be good for me? How could it potentially be bad for me? And what do I need to do? with my own self-knowledge of me, to know how I can be okay with this, right? Because some people can have a drink every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Most people can't, Yeah, you know what I mean? And you need to know what kind of person you are, honestly, to be able to live a life like that. And I think that self-knowledge is is really kind of rare, honestly, I think that, you know, if I could be famous for anything, there are a few things, and, you know, this being said, I'm sure probably somebody said something similar to this before. I, I am a big believer in the idea that there's no such thing as an original thought. But that being said, I don't know that I've, I've ever heard anybody say this this <laughs> way, so I'm going to let my ego let me take credit for it. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of things that we do as human beings that are instinctive that's just part of the creature. And, and again, that's the value of psychology. We've studied this. We we know this is how people operate. This is how we think. This is what we do. This is just human behavior. This is the nature of the creature, right? They're instinctive. We do them naturally. That doesn't mean they're adaptive, mm-hmm. right? We think, oh, well, this is a natural thing to do. And, and that leads to behaviors like cutting, sometimes like, you know, pushing people away in relationships because we fear being rejected. I mean, these are all very natural, predictable, understandably instinctive behaviors that we engage in, but they are not adaptive. And if we don't understand these things about ourselves, then we're going about our lives behaving instinctively and thinking that's okay because it's instinctive, so it must be good and normal and natural, but it's actually not helping us at all, right? We really need to have this. And And this, I think, a lot of times comes down to the stigma of mental health treatment too, which is such a strange thing. And I get that I'm a therapist, so it's going to be strange to me. This is like, you know, take with, you know, whatever. Like, I'm the Chevy dealer telling you that like Chevy's the best car. But like, if you wanted to be a better shooter, you might go take a class from Mike Glover, or Kyle DeFore or something like what we were talking about earlier. But If you wanted to be a better human being and you wanted to go see a therapist, someone would be like, what's wrong with you, dude? That's weird. Like, that's a problem. What? Why why would you not want a consultant to help you understand how to reach your full potential as a human being? If you are in a relationship that's struggling, why would that be weird or shaming to go do something like that? That doesn't make any sense. We don't do it with any other skill that we develop in the entire world we don't say oh if you want to be a better tennis player don't go take lessons from a tennis pro you just figure it out yourself because you know just practice 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 and you'll get there everyone would be like no that's smart go take a lesson from that person right Mm. we don't do that with behavioral health we have this weird stigma around it like this john wayne thing that like you know just and maybe it is kind of a western idea like go out and conquer and you know you're this solo agent or whatever but i'm sorry we are not solo agents we are human beings we are incredibly social creatures mm-hmm. we're we're not sharks we're wolves we're pack animals right look at the amount of language a wolf has versus a shark now look at the amount of language a human being has versus a wolf mm-hmm. i can tell you right now 19 different ways to say that i'm happy or i'm sad or whatever, right? That's an incredible amount of language. We Even the most antisocial person out there that wants to hermit out in the woods is more social than almost any other creature on Earth, right? We're pack animals. We need to be with other people. We need to interact with other people. This idea that we need to do everything alone on our on our own is crazy. Yeah,
0: that's interesting to me because it makes me think about mindset in in the sense that mindset is something that's very vague and not definitively defined mm-hmm. in architecture. And so when somebody says, you know, have a resilient mindset, mindset is everything, crush everything. You don't know what that means. <laughs> right. It's like what does that mean? Right. And then trying to accomplish that, you know, that metaphysical thing, yeah. it's very difficult when you don't have a construct for understanding. Right. And it's almost and this is what Sean and I talked about as well. Is if you want to have a better mindset, go talk to a therapist. Because if you're talking to a therapist, you're extracting and developing really this understanding and protocol for understanding of the mind. And and when you're able to do that, it leads to resiliency. Mm-hmm. It leads to all the like characteristics of a strong mind. Right. Um. And and when you look at our world, like you said, uh, even when you talk about even the the meditative factors of of Benefiting you in mindset because you're getting rid of the clutter or you're trying to come down in a good headspace. A therapist, when conversing with them, could do all that for you when trying to figure out how you're even processing information or understanding yourself. Right. That's crazy. I never thought about that. Like, if to, maybe a way to improve your overall mindset instead of just going to the CrossFit gym and thinking that you're becoming more resilient because you're working out. Right. Maybe actually talk to somebody.
1: And so your Instagram pictures look better. So now you feel better about yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's very surface external, you know, type thing. But like, you know, like, oh yeah, you go to therapy because you're weak or whatever. Like most of the people that are saying that are terrified of the idea of going to therapy. Like they don't want to examine themselves. Yeah. They like, don't want
0: the vulnerabilities. Okay,
1: So now who's weak? Mm-hmm. The person who's willing to boldly look at their own struggles and want to better themselves, willing to take that brave look in the mirror and be like, okay, these are my warts and I need to work on those. Or the person who's now literally afraid of themselves effectively. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm not going to therapy. I don't want to talk about myself. Yeah. Like okay, that's strength somehow? I mean, it's such an upside-down dynamic. I don't even know how we got to this mm-hmm. place as a society. That's our narrative around that.
0: Yeah, The stigmas are very negative. and And like I've seen this resurgence, and it's happened probably within the technology boom of social media, of the life coach practitioner, right? You got a guy... Yeah. And I see these guys talk about mindset and their their life coaches and then you look at their accomplishments and the only thing they've accomplished is making money off people from being a life coach. Yeah. So you're like, so wait a minute, what, are, what were your accomplishments prior to being a life coach and telling people you had the answers and solutions? Right. It was nothing. It was right. the business idea you had and then the marketing tactic you had in trying to convince people that you were a life coach. And I like the fact that a, you know, a person like you is that is actually a psychotherapist that has the training but has the academia to back the understanding could talk to somebody and explain and truly life coach somebody in navigation.
1: And and is beholden to ethics, Mm -hmm. right, that protect the client. A life coach is not beholden to that, right? And they're also not trained to look to their own blind spots Mm -hmm. like therapists are, Mm -hmm. right? So when I go into a session... I constantly am having to monitor myself too so that I'm not doing any harm to that person with me.
0: Wow. Is there is there a protocol for report writing or the way that you report in Absolutely. which you report? Really? Yeah. So it's like a database and there's like a thing that sure. tracks?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, in, in most states have, you know, boards of behavioral health examiners, mm. you know, and they're all independent. At some point, maybe there might be something national That makes it easier to move and keep your licensure but the arizona board of behavioral health examiners lays out these are the requirements for documenting a session these are the requirements for how you maintain the privacy of these documents this is how you have to store these documents this is how long you have to store these documents okay so there is if you do something for example like engage in a dual relationship with a client like try and sell them something it would be wildly inappropriate and potentially unethical right because you could be taking advantage of the relationship you have with that person and some of the power differential that is just automatically there whether you're trying to create it or not because you're their therapist and you could do harm to that person by taking advantage of them or maybe heaven forbid the romantic stuff and sexual stuff that happens and there are very severe consequences for those things and you don't practice behavioral health anymore
0: yeah well, that's a good thing that they have those Absolutely, in, right? In place. Yeah. Um, is there any last thoughts on the, like, is that nonprofit or people able to donate to that and help that? Or is there any? Yeah, close, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: They can go to NACA, N A C A dot org. That's Native Americans for Community Action dot org. Um, there is a donate place on our site. You know, I mean, we run many, many, many programs. There's a lot of different stuff. You can see there were it's kind of a joke as we're like a 50 person organization that runs like 60 programs. It's, wow. it's kind of interesting. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we do a lot of different stuff to help our community and the native community at large. Um, uh, I, I run a small private practice in Flagstaff as well. Um, just a little bit on the side just to, I don't know, cause I, I'm weird. I'm a workaholic or something. I don't yeah. know what my deal is, but part of it's the expense of living in Flagstaff too. And like, you know, you do what you have to do, and I love my job, so why not? Um,
0: How do people get a hold of you? If is that is that something that's open to where people can sign up? Or? Yeah,
1: sure. They can reach me via email. Um, my email is Aaron Rasband, A A R O N R A S B A N D, at aol.com, or they can reach me at my email at work is a rasband at naca.org, n a c a dot So awesome. Can I jump one last thing, though? Yeah, absolutely. Just because I know that your population in particular, like the people that you talk to or the listeners of your audience are, are very heavily like military, veteran-oriented first responders and stuff like that. Um, over the years, as I've worked with veterans and, and dealt with behavioral health issues in the veteran community, I've noticed something that I think is kind of a cultural issue with the military, right? Mm-hmm. And part of it is, you know, we talk about this multicultural piece, and you talked about even having a, a counselor that was a vet, and, and I think that's great, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, not every vet is going to get out of service and go into behavioral health, right? Yeah. And I know, and I won't call them out, but there were a couple of very influential guys that did a YouTube video a little while back about how basically they said, you know, don't go to be a behavioral health professional. They're not going to understand you. Only a vet can understand you. Mm. And, I, and I think that's a bunch of garbage. Yeah. Like.
0: I wouldn't want actually a veteran for some reason. I just wouldn't want that. Yeah. Because there's a whole bunch of assumptions made there. Right. I would want somebody like, disconnected from that situation.
1: Assumption one, that like the trauma you experienced as a veteran is somehow unique to mm. being a veteran. Yeah. Trauma is trauma is trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Like is, you know, being sexually abused by your family, not as bad as being in combat. Yeah. Like, I don't think we need to start going down that road of measuring and comparing trauma. I don't think it's useful. And I don't think it's, we can really even do that anyway. Right. And and I like, and I've even had those discussions with vets sometimes like, nobody, this is the worst trauma. And I'm like, would you rather have been like molested by your family? Yeah. Well, no, that'd be worse. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah exactly. like, sort of, like, so like trauma is trauma is trauma. Trauma is human. Mm-hmm. Being a veteran is human. Like, and, and I see so many vets that come in and they sit down and they feel broken because they feel this internalized shame of like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I was a trained soldier or, you know, airman, sailor, Marine, whatever. I should be able to handle this. And sometimes they're taught that in the military they're literally taught like this idea that they're supposed to be able to handle it, right?
0: Or it's weakness. Or
1: it's weakness, right? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You went to war. You saw man's humanity to man. The worst things that we're capable of doing as human beings and that had a negative impact on you,
0: it should. Absolutely, yeah.
1: If you come to me and you're like, yeah, I went to war. I saw all this death and killing and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm totally fine. I'd be like, uh, dude, what's wrong with you? Yeah, like, what now I'm concerned. Military, yeah. yeah, are you like a sociopath? Like, mm-hmm. what is wrong here, right? And I would love to see a change in the military culture. I believe that nobody in the world, in the history of the world, knows more about the negative impact of war than the United States military. Mm. And I would love to see the military do a better job owning and educating all the people that step forward and volunteer to serve and let them know the emotional risks of what they're getting themselves into and then take care of them afterward and yeah. set up things for that to happen. Not waiting for someone to come forward with a problem and being like, yo, like I'm struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you're struggling. It would be weird if you weren't. Yeah, you should be struggling. Yeah. Absolutely. Like if you come home to your, you know, barbecue life and, whatever on the weekends and stuff like that like after going to war and like that's supposed to be normal, you just leave that behind mm. it's not how human beings are wired it's not how the amygdala works it's just not no. you don't have any say in it it's your physiology you're yeah. a human being that's how it works period end of story
0: mm. that's very interesting i i i, I... I don't like the fact that the only help we're getting is through nonprofits mm-hmm. that are difficult to process and manage and filter, right? Because I, you know, you have every you have a nonprofit. In fact, I just talked to a guy yesterday about this. The nonprofit for military business is rampant, right? The biggest scams in the United States and business have been nonprofits targeting veterans because. Of the opportunities in raising capital for whatever uh, selfish purpose, or, or even guys with the right frame of mind and the and the right agendas, putting nonprofits that aren't necessarily going to help veterans. Like, I you know, no offense to these guys who have these uh sure uh, these particular nonprofits, but as a special forces veteran sergeant major, meaning in the context that I've managed a whole bunch of guys and ran a whole bunch of guys, um, when you have like a nonprofit that's, I don't know, building guns, taking guys, shooting, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff that's related to potential uh, links to trauma, triggers, exactly, literal triggers, or in this case, figurative triggers (laughs) to trauma, (laughs) both of them, Um, I don't think that's healthy. You know, I, I, you know, if it's if it's tied to nature, if it's tied to therapy, more most importantly, mm-hmm. then I think that's the nonprofits that we need to focus on. And I, and I hope guys like yourself, or even uh, in, in this network, or even on this podcast, I'm, I'm going to have a technical guy uh, pretty soon on the podcast that's come up with some kind of solution to. I don't. Some he hasn't told me the details because I want to save it for the podcast to technically evaluate uh certain things like you would in blood to identify uh precursors of of I guess uh symptoms of trauma that's linked to PTSD yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wish more people would pay attention to that. And 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 this idea that my my pet peeve as a sort major and as stuff, are these veterans that specifically are isolating our demographic or subculture because they're saying things Right. That shouldn't be said.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I there are guys out there in the space now. Fortunately, like yourself, you mentioned Sean Ryan and and stuff. And I, I think what the, the Spooners and these yeah, guys that are coming call. out that have served at literally the highest levels mm-hmm. that you can in combat and are saying, yeah, um, that was not cool, and yeah, <laughs> I'm, it's messed with my life.
0: Absolutely. And
1: that are starting to normalize again this experience. Like if you're in the military and you're struggling with what you went through. And it doesn't matter what you did. I've I've worked with people that were truck drivers and mechanics and did technical jobs, but still had some really unpleasant experiences going to war and being deployed. I mean, and I've even worked with people that their horrible experience in the military was being raped by their fellow soldiers. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, some of this stuff has just got to stop that like, there's all this silence and we don't talk about this. No, like... The DOD, I believe, is the biggest employer of Americans, period. Yeah. Like, we need to take care of these people. These are these are America's like, greatest resources, patriots, people that are willing to step forward and serve their country. And why are they not treated like that resource?
0: Yeah. Is there any resources for information that people can go to check out that are maybe going through issues or uh, referencing for therapy to learn more about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can get you some stuff off. I didn't come prepared with like links or I'll anything like that. put it in the notes. Like yeah. Sure, I yeah. But, the notes. I mean, there are suicide hotlines. There are programs everywhere. There are local community behavioral health centers. Like, there are, depending on your community, there are probably a lot of therapists. Like, reach out, find somebody. If they don't work for you, find somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Right? Be that person in your own treatment that gets to say whether... treatment is effective for you or not if you do your due diligence you'll find somebody that's going to help you this treatment for what we do when you really look at like the meta-analyses of comparing behavioral health treatments for the conditions that we treat versus medical treatments for the conditions that they treat it's no contest Mm. behavioral health treatments are far more research proven effective for the conditions we treat than medical treatments are for the conditions they treat. But somehow everyone believes that the medical treatment is the golden standard. And I'm not dogging medicine. I go to the doctor. I'm just saying there is just this weird upside down perception that we have in society that like somehow it's not okay to go get okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a great point, man, and and thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about this stuff. Some of it's difficult to talk about, but in your line of work, educating people on why it's okay to go to a therapist and talk about this stuff, it's been an eye-opening experience for me, and I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks Thank, for having me. Thanks, Aaron.